where today we will undertake the laborious prospect of reviewing the past week's wrestling shows and balance it all out with a palate cleanser of classic wrestling and hijinks galore. And joining me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you. He's the hardest working man in podcasting. He outworks everybody. The great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again. If only Outworks, everybody wasn't used and abused and made to look like trash. I'd be happy to have that catchphrase, but I'm happy to be here today. Well, here's the thing. When you think about it, Christian has outworked everybody. That was his tagline when he came, what, two years ago. He's had like five major television matches in two years. And he, he has outworked everybody. He outtalks everybody right now. We never see him work. We will eventually. Maybe this weekend. Oh, well, it's Labor Day weekend where nobody works. Have you ever noticed that, Lupa? Labor Day is a holiday. Shouldn't you have to work twice as hard on Labor Day? Shouldn't you have to either stay extra at your job or, or get a new part-time position? Shouldn't you really buckle down and really dig in and, and work on Labor Day to celebrate labor? Think about it. You give you give you give gifts on Christmas, right? You, and you and you and you celebrate Thanksgiving. You, you cook a big turkey and celebrate Thanksgiving. Why wouldn't on Labor Day? Why wouldn't you go out and do some fucking work? Well, I think your issue is more of a naming thing. If it was a day for the workers, would that make more sense to you? Yes. Because then all the workers would be, be out doing some fucking work. No, all the workers could stay home and rest for a day. No, we want the work. Federal we holiday. We need the worker drones out there doing the work for the state. It's all about the state and the and the state of the work. Ah, uh, boy, speaking of the state of the work, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, mother of pearl, mother of all creatures, big and small. Did you see the phony shit going on this week on these television programs? My guy, I, and I tweeted, oh, Ola, AEW botches again, managed to compile a few highlights. I tweeted that out the other day. I said, it looks like a, uh, an amazing assortment of self-trained individuals that need an optometrist. They can't even find their fucking opponent, much less hit him. So nobody works on Labor Day weekend, unfortunately, except for wrestlers. There's going to be a, a plethora, a cornucopia, a schmoz, if you will, of wrestling action this weekend. We're going to be covering on your program the, the drive-through next week, right? Or this later this week, whenever the people are consuming this audio. You're getting angry, yes. The answer is yes. Yes, well, I'm getting pissed off thinking about we got to watch the clash at the castle. It's not even my castle. I found out now they're, they're at somebody else's castle. I thought I was just going to be able to look out the window and watch that thing. But now I got to get on the cock for it. 
And then, of course, we have I have to try to figure out how to work the bleacher report for AEW this weekend, where they'll they'll be all out all out of ideas, I think should be the uh actually the head one, but I'm pretty sure it probably wasn't Tony Khan's. They had one for this weekend. But anyway, so that's what we're going to be doing this weekend. But today we will recap what led up to this. We got a fascinating new book about wrestling history. You know, I love wrestling history, and I've always been fascinated by the business of wrestling. So now we have today a talk about a book on the history of the business of wrestling. It's fascinating. And... We got some more emails from uh, fan mail from some flounders and different things, but we want to say at the top of the program, a continuing get well. We've said this the last couple of programs. He's better now. He's, he's going downhill again. That did. Now, what did we decide last year? He's going uphill. Things are going uphill. No, that would mean he's, he's battling gravity. It's a, it's an uphill fight. It's he's struggling. No, he's getting better. That means he's going downhill. It's easier. He's he's swooping down that slope back to the no. the valley of good health. Excuse me, doctor. How's my friend doing? Oh, things are going downhill. That doesn't mean things are getting better. Well, what about hey, doc? How's my friend doing? Well, it's an uphill struggle. But things are going apparently, uphill. Apparently, apparently, he just needs to level out. So, Travis, get level soon. <laughs> now we want to that we're not making mockery of of his ill health. It just happens to be funny. <laughs> we're making mockery of the hill. It, it just happens to be funny how sick he is, and that he's he's nope. uh, not able to be level. That he's uh, is it a is it a fucking what is that vertigo? Is it a a balance problem he's got? We never really did diagnose past the premature projectile ejaculation we didn't know what other contributory factors he had in his in his downhill or his uphill oh just get level soon travis and there's there's the guest artists have tagged in for the youtube channel but uh obviously travis travis is our man travis travis he's our man if he can't do it and we'll get somebody else to fucking do it and um <laughs> And also, <laughs> get well, Travis. And also, I want to say also, Hotchkiss Featherbottom is feeling better as well. He had to quarantine himself in the basement of the Featherbottom mobile home. And, and now the problem is he's just got a bad back because, as I mentioned, the ceiling in that basement's only about two and a half feet high. But he's... uh. So if you've ordered recently product and merchandise from jimcornett.com, uh, mailings are going to be resuming after the last several days. He just wasn't allowed out in public. And it wasn't even his parole officer that said he wasn't allowed outside the, the home this time. It was the public health officials. But um, It's becoming like WCW but, around here. No one comes to work. Uh, well, because they're all sick, you know. Hey, those those yeah. hangnails and cases of hooping belch. I saw Hodgkiss flying to Connecticut the other day. Hey, K-Fabe, for heaven's sake, they can't hire him away. Why? And then, but here's the thing I get, you know, they would save, they would save money on flying Fanny and Felcher around with him because when they put the same raincoat on with both of them only having the one arm opposite of each other, they look like one person with two heads. So they could, they could fly on one ticket. Something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. 
Here, here's something else to think about. That Hotchkiss is getting his disease and contagiosity all out of the way in time for my birthday, which, as we know, this year has attained extra importance and extra magnitude of meaning because it is the day of the release of the brand new official Jim Cornette action figures from Figures Toy Company. The boat has docked. The figures have now arrived, and they go on sale on September 17th. But you can go to jimcornette.com right now. Go to the homepage, and there's pictures with banners, or banners with pictures, whichever way you want to phrase that, of the brand-new figures, which are my debut Monday Night Raw outfit, the pink and red outfit that I debuted on Monday Night Raw in 1993 on, and that the only thing, it doesn't come with sweat, because our action figures in modern days are air-conditioned, but in Alexandria Bay, New York, where Bobby Heenan greeted me, when he grabbed me and squeezed me, we both sweat just, it was like squeezing sponges. You know, Bobby had a, a portly bone in his body or two like I did, so we, it was it was very... It looked like two wildebeests fucking hugging each other. Nevertheless, that amazing pink and red outfit has been memorialized for all time by the Figures Toy Company and the official pink and red Monday Night Raw debut outfit action figure. It comes complete with glasses, microphone, and matching tennis racket, and by gum. There's going to be a little less than 1,500 of these. Available from jimcornette.com, autographed, and this design is not going to be remade. And just in time for Christmas, actually it's not only in time for Christmas, but also Thanksgiving and Halloween, and I think is Veterans Day in there somewhere, Arbor Day, but nevertheless, it's in time for me to sign them all before Christmas. The brand new Christmas variant, Santa Corny, better than ever. We reworked the green and red colors. We've made an amazing uh, a change in that they actually painted my handkerchief this time, which on the previous ones they did not. And that just bugged the shit out of me. And not only does it come with glasses and microphone and tennis racket, but a festive Santa hat that I'm wearing. You've seen the pictures, Brian, and it's, it's amazingly festive for the holiday season. Imagine me coming down your chimney. And I could either write Bah Humbug or Merry Christmas or words to that effect, whichever one you like. So you can even send them to enemies if you'd like to. Although, as we mentioned, it's a way to give me a birthday present and know for sure that you have done the right shopping. Because if you buy me a Jim Cornette action figure for my birthday, I will send you the action figure for free. And say everybody prospers and everybody gets something. Perhaps they can so, all work on Labor Day to get the extra money for the figure. There you go. Y'all ought to be out right now, toting some barges and lifting some bales and pushing some barrows and getting the money to buy. Well, it doesn't even, you don't even need to work that hard because these things are cheap. I shouldn't say cheap. I should say inexpensive. They're finely manufactured, but they're, they're available at, at, at a steal. And that's Jim Cornette. Neither one, this Christmas variant will not be redone either. Because I don't expect to be festive in the future around Christmas time. So, uh, every, <laughs> as long as it takes to get these, and as long as it takes me to sign them and send them out after the next year, a couple of years, I guess, I don't know whether any will be made or not, because I'm nearing my retirement age. 
I'll be 61 on September 17th, and you'll be happy because you'll get an official Jim Cornette action figure if you log on jimcornette.com at noon and jump, especially the pink and red variant, because the bloody variant went in, what, 36 hours. We had a little less than 1,200 of those. We got a couple hundred more of the pink and red, but what does that mean? 48 hours? Who knows anymore? With the uncertain state of the world, who knows what's going on? But uh, I feel like your figure is like ready for a Frankenstein variant. Some plugs in your neck, some boots. Well, what about? Well, could they? They actually, I do have a couple of scars on my head that they could accentuate for such a project. But then, do I have to get electrocuted to be reanimated? Well, that could be the deluxe playset for Frank and Corny. There you, Frank and Corny. It's alive! I can. I love the commercial already. And then, you know, you send the kid out in the yard. If a good thunderstorm is coming, you've maybe got a lightning rod out there already. You plug it into the playset, And then it gives, it gives Frank and Corny and your fucking bothersome little rug rat a fucking a good charge. <laughs> no, that's a bad idea. That's a bad And idea. then Frank and Corny gets up and, yeah, it'd be great. Just send the kids out in a thunderstorm. Don't do that. Tell, tell them to work on attracting the lightning first, and we'll have the playset manufactured in the next year and a half or so. How did talk about a potential monster-themed coronet variant turn it that you wanted to torture children again? I didn't say anything about torture. Electrocution is quick. Hey, that's why they came up with old Sparky. It's, it's supposed to be quick, at least. Sometimes it doesn't work, but there's no torture involved. We don't want them to suffer. Just, <clears throat> there you go. All right, the views of Jim Cornette do not represent anyone else's this week. Well, they, they're about to, because did you see, did you see last night the President of the United States come out and give another truthful and meaningful speech. It's so refreshing that that can happen again after the four years we went through. And a lot of people still tweet me and say, well, hey, Cornette, why aren't you talking every day about, about Biden like you talked about Trump? The answer is simple, because there's no longer a criminal lunatic in the White House. There's no lying. There's no malfeasance. There's no reason to be frightened. A competent, intelligent, experienced professional is in charge now, so you don't need to talk about him every day, except for the fucking morons that have never been to school and never never got the three R's, reading and writing and arithmetic, and think that the President of the United States sets, sets the gas prices. In that case, I, you know damn that Joe Biden, that horrible son of a gun for making the people over there in England pay $10 a gallon for gasoline when you figure from the metric and the liter over to the gallon. Pay $10 a gallon for the gasoline over there just to make it rough on us Americans. Jesus Christ. But it was nice to hear President Biden come out and tell the truth. Sometimes he's a little too nice. And he doesn't come out blatantly, blatantly or blatantly plainly or blatantly state the obvious because it might hurt Americans' feelings, some of them, but they need their feelings hurt at this point. He said the MAGA group is a threat to public safety. It's a public menace. And it just like, you know, when Obama was president and came out, he would 
he would lecture us because he was so much smarter than most people. It sounded like a professor lecturing you. I understand that put some people off. I was refreshed by it because he was so much smarter than the rest of the room. Uh, but he would tell us it's up to us. I can't fix this for you. And Uncle Joe there in a more grandfatherly and uh, friendly way said the same thing. I can alert you to this, but it's up to us as Americans to fix the fucking issue. To not believe or support the maggot bullshit. Nobody is above the law, especially the orange criminal psychopath. Then let's see, uh, who else has been uh, has gotten as close to bringing an end to democracy as Trump did? Hitler wasn't that close. Fucking Mussolini, the Cold War, communism. The, the maggots are a bigger threat and public menace to democracy than foreign terrorism has ever been because the call is coming from inside the house and we don't know who to trust. So anyway, again... I saw people actually say, well, he said he wasn't going to say things to divide us. Jesus Christ, if a fucking spaceship landed from Mars and 40 million or so Martians got out and decided to take up residence in Euclid Heights with the end goal being to take over the fucking world and enslave us all, then I would think the President of the United States would warn us about the Martians living in Euclid Heights. Well, the problem is, they're not Martians. We could identify them possibly easier if they were. They look and sound just like we do until they show their true colors. So anyway, it's up to the Democrats, the Independents, the Republicans with a spine and a conscience to save democracy because the crowd that's up Trump's fucking Hershey Highway are not getting off that road for anything. They will take the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the criminality, the ignorance, the potential danger to the entire world as long as it's not her emails. And he's a fucking spy to... Here, you know, here's the only thing. I don't believe Trump's a fucking spy because I don't think he's smart enough. I think he probably just saw a bunch of shit that's, hey, that looks like good shit that I can sell to the fucking government or trade for my freedom if they try to prosecute me or sell it back or sell it to the highest bidder. But anyway, um, so at least it's nice to see. And, and also, Joe Biden that they call Sleepy Joe and they think he's got dementia, gave a perfectly lucid, uh, coherent speech, the likes of which Donald Trump could only dream about. Except he, he couldn't dream that because he doesn't know all the words and what they mean. Do you see the president's speech, Brian? I saw most of it, yes. Did I, did I misstate any of the uh, summary there? It was a big speech. I think part of the story that people talked about was that it didn't air on all the networks. Who didn't air it? I don't know, because I watched on CNN, so I don't know what... I watched on MSNBC. Well, there we go. 
And uh, I can't imagine that the major. <laughs> The major network, besides obviously Fox News, that doesn't broadcast anything related to truth, I can't imagine anybody would not have carried that. Was there something else going on that was more important than the end of the American way of life as we know it? No, but I mean, I guess the thing is it plays into two different things happening right now. One is the upcoming elections where things, at least in terms of public polling, are starting to turn from where everyone expected it to go, which would have been a Republican win of the Senate and the House, possibly. Or I should say the House and the Senate, possibly. And now it seems to have changed. And also this raid of Mar-a-Lago and all these documents and the changing story, the, the fact that I saw a few people point this out, the New York Post turned against Trump this week. Rupert Murdoch's New York Post. Because they couldn't ignore this. Like, the story keeps changing. and. It's only getting worse. Like it's not like I keep changing the story and I'm doing all right. We're getting out of this. No, it's getting worse. So that's I guess what caused this speech being a being such a big deal right now at the moment, just because of things being fired up again. It seems like Trump went away for a while and now he's right in front of everyone again. Yeah, so we can get a good fucking whiff of it and decide which penitentiary to fucking ensconce him in for the rest of his natural life. Anyway, moving forward with good people, good people that deserve good things. Uh, we got an email from a listener named Jesse, and uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing otherwise than to say that he was he was having a very bad time three or four years ago, and was not enjoy or finding joy in pretty much anything until. He found our shows, but actually a clip from the YouTube channel and actually snort laughed in a lot for the first time in a long time. And, uh, and now has, uh, not only been listening to us on a regular basis, but has fought back and nipped up. And now he says, I'm doing much better. Now I'm happily married with an awesome daughter and two goofy dogs, a clumber spaniel and a Newfoundland. That was W.C. Fields' favorite kind of dog in Newfoundland. And they say, hi, Harley. So, hi, Jesse, from me and all of us and Harley. And we're glad you're feeling better. And I got another email. Brian, this brought up. Actually, this is something that we have never talked about. Because I'll, I'll read the email and then I'll say what we've never talked about. It's from Andrew. And he says, hi, Jim and Brian. Actually included you in this. I have a question about lumberjack matches. Jim, do you have a sense of how the wrestlers outside the ring felt about them? Did they get bored or upset at having to hang out there instead of being able to be in the locker room? Or did wrestlers enjoy the opportunity to be part of that kind of match? I'm asking because I just watched Bob Backlund and Playboy Buddy Rose have a lumberjack match, and one of the wrestlers outside the ring was superstar Billy Graham. I can't imagine he was thrilled to be there. <laughs> thanks so much 1982 billy graham yeah yeah he wasn't thrilled to be anywhere at that particular point but this is something that we have actually not it hadn't come up is that now well they don't do lumberjack matches anymore i don't think at all we'll talk about the origin and the variations of them in a second but they still do battle royals and it's kind of the same thing 
You know, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure by the plethora of battle royals and or multiple man matches these days, I think the boys actually enjoy them. Now, it's a chance to go out and do more cool stuff. When you got to the goddamn building in the territory days and saw the lineup and saw that there was a battle royal, if you didn't already know it, your enthusiasm for the night immediately fucking plummeted, right? Because there, a battle royal was, in a lot of cases, that was a way to soup up a weak card or a spot show, it, it, you didn't pay the wrestlers twice for working twice if it was a battle royal. So if you had a fucking spot show with eight guys on it, and then the main event, you know, said one, two singles, one tag, and a battle royal, the people get their money's worth and you get double labor as, as a promoter. Uh, and you get double work as a wrestler. And, it, you know, it just, it, I mean, I'm not talking about the big annual... San Francisco or Los Angeles Battle Royal in their day when they drew big houses and everybody's money was up because of it and it was a big deal. I'm talking about generally, you know, for the most part, in most territories, Battle Royal night sucked. And, you know, there there was that um there was that phase that is 72 through 74 where they invented the two-ring battle royal, and it went through to every territory. And they monkeyed with the rules a little bit. Sometimes the last guy in each ring fought, and other times everybody had to be thrown from ring one to ring two and then thrown to the blah, 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 whatever. But that picked things up a little bit because it was something new. And then they did too many of those, and it was... I remember one time, I think Nick Goulas had three two-ring battle royals in uh, when he was still technically uh, in charge of the company here in Louisville, and well, he wasn't in charge of Louisville, but you know, Goulas Welch Wrestling in in uh, in a six month period in Louisville at one point, it was just battle royal crazy. But anyway, the lumberjack matches were kind of the same thing in that especially for other top guys that were in programs to have a lumberjack match. You had to have at least eight or 10 guys around the ring or it looked stupid. Right. And sometimes they'd say, Oh, 16 men around the ring. So then you're basically using everybody else on the card, except maybe if there, if there's a main event title match or whatever the fuck the guys with the pull to not be in the lumberjack match weren't in the lumberjack match. Otherwise, it was everybody's duty. And the preliminary guys were pissed off in most places. You, you Like, in Louisiana and Mid-South for Watts, all the wrestlers had to stay till the end of the night, till the end of the show, and whether first match or last match, whatever. The reason for that was because Honestly, Watts wanted all the underneath guys to watch the main event guys and learn something, but also the underneath heels would stay out of respect to help the main event heels fight the crowd on the way back, and the underneath baby faces would stay in case uh, usually they were riding with a top baby face, or in case shit really went south, or if somebody got hurt in a, one of the last two matches and needed fill in whatever the fuck, but... In a lot of territories, when you were done, you could leave. So 
the preliminary guys are thinking, oh, fuck, I'm going to be out there the last match. I'm going to be an hour and a half farther from home, or I could be out in the parking lot and backseat of the car getting a blowjob or whatever the fuck. And the, the top guys, if there, there were any in the mix, are out there kind of malingering because it's not their program, it's not their angle, and they're being made to be one of the boys with the underneath guys, and it doesn't look good for them to be standing around out there. And generally, a lumberjack match would be last of the evening. But So that meant that they've, they've already been seen in, in their program, in their angle, whatever light they're going to be seen in. Now they got to come out and play second fiddle to somebody else. Does that make any sense, Brian, when guys thought about themselves as stars and how they were viewed by the fans instead of just, hey, kids, let's put on a show? Yeah. And I mean, when you would see a lumberjack match, you wouldn't see typically. I mean, maybe if it was a Saturday night's main event or something, it would be different. But you wouldn't see a Hulk Hogan. You wouldn't see a Bruno San Martino. You'd see lots of Brian Blairs and various people from the card. but not the world champion or top guy. Right. But in the territories, when it was a smaller talent roster and whatever, unless you were the, the booker, maybe Dusty, whatever, in Florida, you kind of had to usually go out. So anyway, do you I like don't your, know. Go ahead. Do you like your lumberjacks wearing flannel? <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. A lot of people may not even understand what the fuck is a lumberjack match. They don't do them that much anymore. and. I don't know that anybody has done the history. It's not like they've tried to track down where was the first cage match and they come up with a fishnet in Galveston, Texas in the 30s or fucking chicken wire wherever. But a lumberjack match, obviously, one would think that it maybe in the Northwest or in Canada, Joe LaDuke was the Canadian lumberjack, but it has to go back to the 40s, I would imagine. And wherever you had you know lumber like a coal miners glove match didn't get over in fucking texas there were no coal miners so you would think it would be in an area where they had a lumber industry and or the local lore featured lumberjacks but they would they would switch them around like remember bruiser in the in the early 70s in chicago and wherever they promoted a human cage match where the ring will be surrounded by uh, wrestlers, and it'll be a, like a human cage to keep the guys in. But the story was that in the lumber camps, you know, in, in the days gone by, when the two lumberjacks had a fucking beef, they would get in a fight, and all the other guys in the lumber camp would be in a circle surrounding them, and nobody was allowed to leave till it was over. They'd throw them back in. And that was a simple enough explanation. And then you get a guy with some type of you know, a lumberjack gimmick uh, that might fit, and that helps even better. And they did those for years. And then every once in a while, they would soup it up a little bit, like the the lumberjacks with straps, which I was involved in 40 years ago in my rookie year in the business. That goddamn... You've seen the tape of me and Adrian Street and Miss Linda against Dundee at the Cook Convention Center in Memphis, right? Yeah, it was on one of your compilations, yeah. Yes, where my whole fucking face got bashed open. The goddamn deal with, here's again, the guys being lumberjacks didn't necessarily like the lumberjack matches because they had to be out there in somebody else's shit and blah, blah, blah. 
but at least, you know, not only would they would work with you, and you would have an equal number of baby faces and heels. So during the match, the the heel would want to hide behind his friends from his locker room and avoid punishment. And then later on, when the heel's getting heat and he throws the baby face out, well, the baby face is supposed to be maligned and assaulted by the heels before the other baby face can get around there and stop them. And that gets the heat up. And then at the end of it, all the lumberjacks get in a big schmoz with each other. And while in the ring, the guys involved go into their big slam bang finish, as Tootsmont would say. Well, then they, they start, you know, modifying the things. And in Tennessee, again, they started, and it was kind of a modified country whipping match from world class, but the lumberjacks, there wouldn't be as many of them at ringside, but it is sometimes it would only be baby faces to keep the heel in, but they would have leather straps and basically belts that they would whip the fucking heels until they got back in the ring. And I think Paul Lee at one point, maybe Eddie Gilbert even did a fucking fans lumberjack deal where they gave real fans belts. And, and no, that was Goodhart. Joel Goodhart. Was, that was that. Goodhart. Terry Funk versus Lawler, I think. Yes, God damn it. Oh my God. So, well, the fans couldn't hit as hard as some of the boys when they're fucking with you. But anyway, so we have that match in Memphis with me and Adrian and Linda against Dundee. And the Lumberjacks are Jerry Lawler, Terry Taylor, Stan Lane, and Steve Kerr, and the Fabulous Ones. And that was one. We had the Lumberjack strap matches for two weeks every fucking night except Sunday. So we were getting a shit whipped out of us, right? But this was like one of the first ones. And I just smartened up because it, they weren't good. The Lumberjacks being baby faces, they weren't going to whip Linda hard or if at all they were going to work it out of respect because she's a woman and she's Adrian's wife. And they weren't going to whip Adrian outrageously, although they were going to get the gimmick over because they all knew that Adrian could stretch, well, he could stretch. Terry Taylor, Lawler, and Stan probably with no issue, and it would take him two or three minutes to stretch Kern. So they weren't going to fuck with Adrian. They were just going to work the gimmick. So it fell to me as the rookie manager and the only one who couldn't whip anybody involved, they were going to beat the shit out of me and fuck with me, right? So I knew by this point from the first couple to wear two pairs of sweatpants with a pair of wrestling trunks underneath and three t-shirts, one on top of another, which is why if you see any more of those tapes, Dundee's always trying to rip my shirt off so that they can whip my bare back. <clears throat> but I'm wearing all this shit and they're still laying them in. And I looked after two weeks, I looked like hamburger, right? It was fucking ridiculous. But I'm trying to fucking weasel my way back into the ring every time he, you know, I roll out or I get on the apron. And then I turn around and Kern, somebody has given Kern the worst one because Kern will take all the goddamn liberties that he wants to take, right? That son of a gun. Some fan in the front row has given him a big, thick, like three-inch leather belt with metal studs on it. Now he's got the regular working belt, plus a big one. He's got one in both hands. He's windmilling them. Then, at that point, Dundee decides I hadn't taken enough bumps outside to get whipped, so he grabs me and starts to throw me out of the ring. And all he says is, take a bump out. 
about halfway to the ropes, I realized that nobody had ever thrown me out of the ring before. This is like my fucking 12th wrestling match. And four of those were against Jimmy Hart. And so I know what my head's got to go through first, but I don't really know what to do from there. This is one thing I've never broken down and studied. But it didn't matter anyway because Dundee had grabbed the the collar of all three of my T-shirts and the waistband of all three of my fucking trousers and just pitched me. And his Buddy Wayne spot show ring and the ropes were like rubber bands. So when I went through over the second rope and under the top rope and bowed out and it snapped back, I went upside down, boom, my, the side of my face hits the edge of the apron, which had no padding on it because it was Buddy Wayne's spot show ring and the boards were like that on the side. And it lays my face open. And then when I land, I see the blood shooting out about a foot out of my face every time my heart beats. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And Terry Taylor comes over and fucking draws back to whip me and gets this look on his face and turns around and walks off because he's kind of disgusted. And I crawl back in the ring and Miss Linda says, Jim, your nose is bleeding. I says, not my nose. So a second later, while I'm over on the apron, and now Adrian's trying to get some heat on Dundee. And Dundee comes back and fucking tries to chase Miss Linda. And I didn't see what happened. But I hear this big fucking pop from the crowd, this big cheer reaction. And I look over and there's Linda face down on the mat and she's covering her head and her hands. And I'm like, oh my God, she's hurt. And I go over now, I'm bleeding all over her because <laughs> there's a, my cheek is opened up where you can lay your fucking index finger in it. And I bend over and say, Linda, are you all right? And I see she's laughing. Dundee was trying to pull her into the ring, grabbed her tights and pulled her tights as she had fishnet stockings on and these you like moolah style wrestling tights and it pulled her tights up in how can i say this brian it gave her the world's biggest camel toe and the entire and she was hanging over the middle rope when he pulled her goddamn tights up like that and the whole east side of ringside of the cook convention center saw do they have caverns in fucking England? I, I would oh. say Mammoth Cave, but it wouldn't. Oh. But it, it was, she, she's laughing because it was the worst. She said it was a horrible shot. So all the people started laughing. So she's laying there trying to get her shit pulled out from under her thing. And Dundee's done that. Now Adrian's on him. I'm bleeding all over everybody. And then I got to wait through the rest of the match where Adrian gets the heat. And then Dundee makes comeback and beats all of us. That was the night that I had to wait to go get fucking sewn up at the hospital until Jimmy Hart got painted yellow. So then the lumberjack matches that we had in Crockett, Dusty came up with a great idea in that he gave all the lumberjacks in the Midnight Express matches tennis rackets. So, but the thing is, they were tennis rackets with, did you ever see any of the tapes of those matches? They were rackets without the covers. They were just, you could see the, the strings. Right. So they were, so they, they hurt worse than my racket because the guys didn't know how to fucking work with them, but they didn't make any noise like my racket did because they didn't have covers on them. And that's how we kind of kept, because if, if, 
if, if, you know, eight guys had been out there swinging rackets, making the same noise as mine did, and guys still had to live through the match, that would have made no sense. So nobody ever actually really picked up. The fans didn't say anything, but that's what, uh, that's what the difference was, or I would have objected to giving everybody my gimmick, and Dusty knew that. And then I stole that for Smoky Mountain Wrestling when I had the big match between me and Bullet Bob after the hospitalization angle where all four of my guys, the Bruce Brothers and the Heavenly Bodies, and all four of uh, Bob's guys, the Rock and Roll Express, and his sons, uh, Scott and Steve, had tennis rackets around the ring to keep me from, or him, allegedly, from running off and escaping. And it just, it worked because it was tailored to the to the people involved in the in the match. But um but yeah, for the most part, battle royals and lumberjack matches were not popular with any of the talent that had to be around ringside being supporting players if they weren't just the guy in the first match anyway. And even then he wasn't getting an extra payoff and he was it was keeping him out of the parking lot where he might get an extra payoff. But now I think that all these guys just are honored and impressed and love to be pressed into service in any fashion whatsoever. I used to tell guys in wrestling school, yeah, be available, be ready, do anything for free and on the sperm of the moment because you're in school. You, This is what you want to do. But once guys in the territory days got there and had a level of comfort, they didn't like being having to be involved in other people's Gaga. What do you think of the Lumber Jill match? Oh, and now, and, and yes, and the, that was such a cute little play on words. Um, again, stipulations should be few and far between, probably in most wrestling anymore these days, because they've all been prostituted. And I guess I shouldn't say that like that when we're talking about, about to mention a girl stipulation, but they've all been worn out. And when you do stipulations in girls' matches, then that should be even fewer and farther between amongst a select few, because then it's it's the it's the moonsault theory. When Muta was the only one to do the moonsault, it was the coolest thing in the world. Then Vader did a moonsault. Shit, now a 400-pound guy can do a moonsault. Then fucking Terry Funk did it. Now a 55-year-old guy can do a moonsault. Then the fucking midget started. Now the midget can do a moonsault. Then the girl started. Now a girl can do a moonsault. Now everybody does a goddamn moonsault. I got one more battle royal story, and, and we'll we'll be done. Do you know what a Titanic battle royal is? I, have, I have never heard of that stipulation, no. Well, there was one night in Tupelo, Mississippi, <laughs> the boys decided they were going to have a Titanic battle royal. And... It was one of those deals where it was an eight-man battle royal at the end of the night. Stretch the card out, right? And it's Tupelo to begin with. And it was still Eddie Marlin's town. He hadn't sold it to that woman in fucking Amory, Mississippi yet. But anyway, so Eddie Marlin is the guy. He's sitting up at the front, at the front door at the ticket booth selling tickets, right? But they were short an announcer, so they make Eddie be the announcer that night. So... Eddie would go up and he'd announce the match and then the timekeeper would ring the bell and then Eddie'd go and sit back down at the front door at the ticket booth. And then his normal habit when he would do this was he'd come back at the during the main event, he would count up the, the tickets and the money and do the settlement. So on this night, <laughs> it's the battle royal 
He goes up there. He introduces it. They ring the bell. He gets out of the ring. He walks back to the front door, sits down at the fucking ticket table there. And he heard the bell ringing to stop the match. They'd already, they'd already finished. If <laughs> by the time he walked back to the table and sat down, it was a Titanic battle <laughs> Royal. That means everybody bails overboard. <laughs> it was just a mass mute. It was like, fuck this town and fuck this battle Royal. <laughs> and God damn it. It, they said, and that, that was the same. They needed town. lumberjack. They needed lumberjacks that night. Well, the, but all the lumberjacks were in the ring doing the battle <laughs> royal. That was the same town, Tupelo, Mississippi. Jimmy Kent, the manager, was in a loser leave town match in Tupelo one Friday night. If his team, the Bounty Hunters, whoever lost the match, Jimmy Kent had to leave town, and he pulled up next to the building where all the fans saw him before the show with a U-Haul behind his car and his wife and family inside. So people got a pretty good fucking clue. <laughs> Ah, but anyway, uh, would you like to travel over to the world of Japanese anime, Brian? This has been a popular topic here lately. No, not really. Unless we're going to talk about something cool like Voltron or something. Well, hold on, hold on Defender here. Defender of the universe. We, well, we've got emails from, from some of the listeners that have been listening to some of the emails from some of the other listeners. Now, we've been smartening up this this anime and the weebs and the waifus and the all of the terminology and everything well we've got a, a different viewpoint here from ryan from liverpool i'd like to thank everyone on behalf of myself and the band uh brian ryan from liverpool says hi jim and brian i'd consider myself a militant weeb i will defend my people to the death however the weebs i know including myself, are all six feet plus and trained in everything from boxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu to Krav Magra and Sambo. <laughs> I've heard of all those things except Krav Magra, which sounds like a poisonous fruit from the Amazonian rainforest. Possibly Ryan is a poisonous fruit from the Amazonian rainforest. Nevertheless, that being said, the anime we watch is full of buff men with big swords or buff men with unnatural fighting ability or buff men with magical powers. Parenthetically, I wonder if there's a theme here. That's Ryan's words, not mine. There is, however, romance anime which ranges from the heartwarming and occasionally heartbreakingly sad to seedy school children being assaulted by tentacle monsters. In summary, there are two types of weeb. The basement-dwelling, overweight, neckbeard fucks who give the rest of us a bad name, and the, to coin an American phrase, jocks who work out, train martial arts, and look at buff cartoon dudes to try to get their physiques. <laughs> Uh, Yours in friendship, Ryan from Liverpool. So they're just um, like wrestling fans. That's what you're saying. Well, there's got to there's got to be a third option in there somewhere. I don't know whether I want to dwell in the basement and grow the my neck hair out, or look at buff cartoon dudes and try to replicate their physiques. Can there not be a 
A third option, something in the middle, not too hot, not too cold. Do you think there's ever going to be like a weebs mods versus rockers, right? The basement dwellers come out and all the big buff weebs beat the shit out of them <laughs> for weebs superiority. <laughs> but now, wait a minute. What are they doing down there in that basement, though? They may have some fucking weapons, some equalizers going on. And more than likely not. There's another one here from Matthew. In West Virginia. And um, I didn't know they had simulated, I didn't know they had video games in West Virginia. Oh, it's another one about this? Simulated. Yes, yes. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> remember we read the email from uh, from a fellow named Slap. Slap Cockenballs? C-O-C-K-E-N-B-A-W-L-S. It's a, it's a fine old Irish surname. So Matthew from West Virginia heard us, you know, talking about that and wanted to add some things in. Uh, hello from Matthew in West Virginia. I wanted to add further. I wanted to add further after listening to your clip. Well, he's adding further now with Mr. Slap, who was also adding on to Mr. Manny's knowledge of dating sims. Primarily, you and Brian began to stumble into uncontrollable laughter and despair at the descriptions of many of the games. The scope of these games is far above and beyond what Mr. Slap pointed to. One very specific game is something very much in your wheelhouse, Jim. Cena High. Have you heard about this, Brian? Cena High? Like John Cena? Cena High. It is a sim game that is based around your character going to John Cena High School wanting to learn how to wrestle. Your character is a girl who has her pick of many different high school stereotype versions of John Cena, including Jonathan the Nerd Cena or Johnny the Bully Cena. This Parenthetically, with poorly Microsoft paint clothes placed over literally the exact same PNG picture of Cena. Yeah, no prototype John Cena. Is this an officially licensed thing? I it, it does not say whether or not that is the case. Your choices in the game can even end up in game over if you pick a wrong fight as you will be pinned one, two, three. No idea where the referees even come from. The main boss of the game, by the way, is a giant Photoshop inflated Brock Lesnar monster with six arms. Just wanted to include that. Um, another one. Brian, of these many games that these games people play, you take them and you leave them. Things that they say, honor bright, when they promise you the moon and the stars, would you believe them? Games people play in the middle of the night. I love Alan Parsons. Another off one is Dream Daddy, where you place a father to a teen girl new to a neighborhood of single dads. Where you, where you, no, where you play a father to a teen girl, I guess. To a teen girl new to a neighborhood of single dads to pick your preferred dream daddy. Oh, my God. You can choose between the goth dad, <laughs> the hipster sick. dad. Listen to this one. The married dad that's in an unhappy Christian heterosexual marriage with four kids all named after Christ. <laughs> Wait, what? that's one of the options? P.S. The Christian dad and his unhappy wife are literally named Mary and Joseph. Most of my awareness, is this Matthew officially, says... Is this an officially licensed game? <laughs> who would sign off? Who's in charge of the Jesus Christ estate? 
these the intellectual property is there a a trademark we got to get Akins and Gwen on this the uh <laughs> well they do all the trademark work for new law office um is there is I guess, is there a trademark owner of Jesus Christ? How do how do we have all the churches and the T-shirts bandy in Christ's name and the games? Well, different people claim different. Like the when I was Who's in getting uh, paid when I was in Torino, you know, like they lay claim to the shroud of Turin, which they claim was the shroud that Jesus Christ was buried in, and then rose up from, and they have. All sorts of they have postcards, they have everything. They don't have beach towels. The one well, thing you like think they would have would be that's like having Flair Starcade robe, though. If you have Flair Starcade robe, that doesn't mean you got the rights to Ric Flair's name and likeness. No, but you could buy that for another fifty bucks. So what's the point? All right, now. Anyway, back to Matthew. Uh, most of my awareness of these come these video games come from video game communities playing them for public laughter and streaming. So, uh, Slap, Mr. Cock and Balls, is right about the communities being mostly harmless and in good fun. One that I know was popular for a while was a dating simulation between your character and fast food restaurant mascots. Now, there, you know, Queenie Bee, I had thoughts about her when I was eight. Queenie Bee, because even in that bee costume, you could tell she had a honeypot on her. But are you a boy or a girl in this game? Maybe you're stuck with Grimace and the Hamburglar. Oh, fuck out. I'll make him grimace. <laughs> As for your notion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you better not or Mayor McCheese will show up. Oh, shit. <laughs> Man, then I'll be sitting in the cell next to the Hamburglar doing one to three on a fucking morals charge. As for your notion of the games only being worth it if it goes to debauchery, there are actually a number of those as well, though my knowledge there is mostly surface level, of course, Matthew. So anyway, uh, uh, yeah, so there, there we go. That was, uh, the fun seems to be in the ridiculousness of it, according to, to Matthew. Oh! <clears throat> Did you see the tweet of somebody made a, 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 an animation of me and a flirty-eyed Wendy's waitress that was put out there here recently. I walked in, and, and her eyes got all dewy and everything. It was on Twitter. Maybe there's more to that story. I can't wait to see how that comes out. What, what more could there be to that story? Well, you never know. About the, there, was, there was this one girl that worked the window at Popeye's Chicken on South Boulevard in Charlotte, was a big fan, and often took a break whenever I'd go buy for my sausage gravy on the way to the airport, but I digress. Would you like to talk about some wrestling? That's what you said happened to Travis Heckle. Popeye. <laughs> Poor Travis. He got the, uh, he had, had all he could stands and he couldn't stands no more. Um, we're going to talk about wrestling. Good wrestling, not the modern stuff. The modern stuff, you got to wait just a little while longer on. But um, I, I, this time, I, I, I don't want to give Scott Teal the credit for authorship of this book. Tim Dills, another friend of ours who's a longtime Tennessee wrestling fan, has written the basis of the book. Scott Teal has used his formatting skills and extensive research and photo collection, and they've, they've collaborated on this thing. Tim Dills did all kinds of the legwork. But the new book available from crowbarpress.com 
is called Professional Wrestling and the Tennessee Athletic Commission. And while Scott and Tim do some fantastic historical retrospectives, the titling of books is not exactly <laughs> their goddamn strong point. It sounds drier than a nun's twat, but this is one of the greatest, most fascinating wrestling books that I've ever seen because not only it goes back to the prehistory of the Tennessee Territory before Jerry Jarrett, something that I've heard a lot of these names. I met a number of these people, the Christine Jarrett's and the Pat Malone's, and I heard about the Don Pruitt's, and of course, Nick Goulas and Roy Welch. But it gives you a look, an amazing look, at uh, the wrestling business in Tennessee from a completely different perspective that's ever been done before because the records of the Tennessee Athletic Commission still exist. The first commission was established in the mid-30s and honestly didn't last long. It didn't seem to go anywhere. And it was dormant or whatever for almost 20 years. And then in the mid-50s, they, uh, they revamped it and established really a new commission. And from that point through 1980, there was an athletic commission in the state of Tennessee that governed boxing and wrestling. And many of these records still exist. This book covers the years from well, the early 30s version, but then the mid-50s to 1971, which I assume a later volume is going to cover the years of the 70s. But it's not only amazing that you know, Scott's done tremendous research on the ghoulous end of, of the Tennessee Territory and amazing profiles on the announcers and the promoters and knowledge that I didn't even think was still around or was able to be found. You know, I don't know how these guys do this research. But also, and Brian, you and I have talked about this, there's so much hyperbole and exaggeration and cloudiness of history and wrestling and facts lost and you know paperwork lost and and you know we have to go on you know a lot of accounts of the talent involved in a lot of cases whose memories are questionable sometimes say the least who have an agenda who want to inflate one thing or reduce another thing or whatever so it's hard to get legitimate and I mean I know some of the guys I won't I won't even call any names here. This is not the, the time for the topic. But some guys that were involved in the wrestling business at a high level still cannot remember half the shit that they did and or when it was or the dates or the places. And so at any rate, it's great to have factual stuff. And the reason I'm going to read you some of this stuff, we're going to talk about it, is because, again, we talk about how professional wrestling as a whole has lost popularity and has lost being part of, you know, mainstream America as it was once before. And that now everybody that's involved in it is just so happy that they're entering into a golden age of wrestling and blah, blah, blah. And things have never been better when it's just that they're not old enough to realize things used to be a lot better. And I, I love some of this information that shows exactly how big, popular, mainstream, 
important to a lot of people, profitable. The wrestling business was when Vince, and then now the modern generation, is rewriting Vince's history. For years, wrestling fans were mad at Vince McMahon for rewriting history and the story that he took wrestling out of smoky bars. And now the modern generation is rewriting wrestling history. Well, now wrestling has more styles and promotions than ever to choose from. And isn't everything all lovely? And no, none of it is. I won't say none of it. But anyway, um, Brian, do you have your hymnal in front of you? The book, The Professional Wrestling in the Tennessee Athletic Commission. Is that what you were saying? Yes. Well, would it. you turn to page 62? No, there is. Um, there, there was an audit of the Tennessee Athletic Commission made in, uh, in the early 60s. And this was done because they, the, you know, state government wanted to see where the license fees were going and where the money was going and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not going to, you know, recap this whole thing. There's like four pages of audit notes uh, and an explanation for what it was and why it happened in the book here. But as a result of this audit, we know the money that each city in wrestling or in Tennessee, the taxes that were paid on wrestling shows in that city for a couple of year period. And it's broken down city by city and fiscal year by fiscal year. And Scott's brilliant because you can extrapolate from that tax the gross revenue of wrestling in those cities because the tax was 4%. So if you times the tax by 25, you get the supposedly, as we'll talk about, the gross revenue for wrestling in that city for that particular fiscal year and some of them were quite uh surprising to say the least although on closer examination brian i i think that the promoters back in the 50s were still getting away with something because as big as some of these numbers are i don't know that they add up we'll go through them and also all through this book and it was part of the tennessee wrestling tradition these promoters that predated this athletic commission that had always had the wrestling business to themselves, all of a sudden now, state steps in, wants guys licensed, wants promoters licensed, wants them to have insurance, wants them to kick back 4%. Well, in a lot of cases, the promoters would get in with a commissioner and use the commission to their advantage, which Nick and Roy Welch did a ton of times keeping outlaw promoters out and et cetera. But at the same time, they always wanted to avoid paying the taxes. And if you didn't have an inspector in every single town for every single show, which was happening multiple times every night of the week in the state of Tennessee, then it was left up to the promoters to send in the taxes. And all through this book, Mickey Barnes, who promoted for uh, as a front man for the Roy Welch and Buddy Fuller for years in both Memphis and in Kingsport was behind on his taxes. And Buddy Fuller himself, they were constantly dunning him and threatening to pull his license for non-payment of taxes in his town and he'd have to catch up or make an agreement or whatever. 
but this was uh, it was a, a battle that they they tried to use the commission when they could, and then they tried to avoid them paying them anything whenever it was possible. But the the gates for the fiscal years that's July through June of 1958 and 1959 for the cities in Tennessee. I just wanted to read a few of them. And Brian, you know that 1958 through 1959 was the period of time in Memphis where they had just gotten television. And also they had just gotten, Nick and Roy had uh, taken the city of Memphis into their territory from the previous promoter, Les Wolf, who was getting his talent from the Tulsa operation of Sam Avey. And they'd finally brought Memphis into the fold with the rest of the state of Tennessee. So for 1958 through 1959, based on the amount of tax that was paid by the promoters to the State Athletic Commission, we can assume that pro wrestling in Memphis grossed $66,618. Now that sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it, Brian? For those days. For those days, for the time. Let's make the, well, let's make the point that in 1959, a dollar in 1959 is worth $10 and change today. So times everything times 10 to get a current picture. That means that in modern money, Memphis grossed $660,000 in 2022. But when you think, there were 52 shows they ran every week. And business was never so bad <laughs> that they only drew 1,000 people a week. And tickets were an average of $2, maybe $1.50, $1.75 in those. Because remember, the ringside and Tennessee towns around this time was probably $2, $1.50 in some smaller cities. General admission was $1, $1.50. They had kids' tickets for 50 cents. And of course, in Memphis, they had the colored section, as they called it. Uh, tickets were 75 cents, but still, that looks like a low number. But then you go to the next year. Remember summer of 1959, Sputnik Monroe had come in. The feud with Billy Wicks. There were two ballpark shows in the month of August that sold uh, between the two of them over 25,000 tickets. The gross for Memphis for the next fiscal year becomes $245,127. So now, all of a sudden, in today's money, that's $2.5 million, and it still looks low because we've got basically documentation through photographs and newspaper accounts that those Sputnik Monroe and Billy Wicks ballpark shows, two of them sold 25,000 tickets. And this book mentions later on or earlier on that Sputnik was told that the gate for his big match at Russwood Park with the, the blow-off match was $34,000, which, by the way, would be $340,000 today. So I think that they were still skimming money. And I'll tell you this because of other facts that I've got and figures, but I think they were still skimming money from the commission in those days, even when they were reporting it 
and even when they were paying it. So point is, for the fiscal year of 1959 and 1960, the Goulas-Welch Wrestling Empire in Tennessee, whether it be Chattanooga, Bristol, Clarksville, Dyersburg, Jackson, Kingsport, Knoxville, Memphis, Nashville, Paris, Savannah, Union City spot shows, they paid over $27,000 in taxes, and that's 4% of the gates, which meant the gates were $655,243. And in today's money, that's $6.5 million from ticket sales on wrestling in one state from one promotional company that was running in all or parts of four other states at the time. And I think it's low. And the other Can thing you is, imagine, and, and again, I'm just one more thing. And then you jump in. Can you imagine how many $2, and 75 cent tickets that they were selling in one state every fucking night of the week, year in and year out. Go ahead. If they weren't skimming, they would have been the only promoters that weren't skimming. Yeah. But that's one of the interesting things. They quadruple business in Memphis. So obviously the taxes had to go through the roof from what they previously were. And the other thing is, in terms of who pays the taxes, Buddy Fuller got into trouble. It's a family thing, it turns out. Tax trouble around this period of time. But if we are to believe he's the front man for his father and Negulus, who's really responsible for that tax debt? It was always coming from the Goulas Welch Empire because they had a piece, even if they had a frontman promoter, local promoter, even if somebody had their own town and used Goulas Welch talent, that promoter gave Goulas Welch 10%. But pretty much everything began and ended with that Goulas Welch booking office in Nashville. And that's why sometimes one guy would get in trouble who had the license to promote in a town. He'd get in trouble for not paying taxes or whatever the fuck. That guy would leave, and he might go to Oklahoma or somewhere else and start promoting wrestling, and somebody else would become the local promoter in that town, but the talent would never change because the talent was being booked by Goulas and Welch, and they were running the the ultimate show. There were some layers that local officials would have to go through to get to Nick and Roy in Nashville, but but they were there. And here, here's another thing, for example, in Nashville, they were paying more taxes in those years in Nashville, or at least in 58 and 59, than they were in Memphis. In Nashville, they paid $79,403 in 58-59 compared to sixty-six grand in Memphis. But then Memphis blew up so ridiculously that the next year they paid 245 or they didn't pay. I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong column. They grossed. They grossed 79 in Nashville, allegedly. That's what they reported. And they grossed 66 in Memphis. But the next year, Memphis was up to 245 and Nashville was up to 100. But I don't know that there's, you know, uh, uh, any point in time where Nashville was doing that much better than business in Memphis, except say that maybe 
they were better reporters in Nashville because that's <laughs> where the fucking state government was located and somebody was keeping an eye out on it. Because then you also see that uh, Chattanooga was their other major town, $77,000, the gross for the fiscal year of 58-59, doubled in 59 and 60 to $145,000. But at the same point, they had problems in the Tri-Cities with their, the Kazanas were also a lot of times in trouble with taxes, and Knoxville business dropped nine grand from 58.59 to 59.60. But point being, that's a lot of tickets, a lot of money for those days, and a lot of fucking cash, as I've mentioned before, in these spot shows and these little ticket windows and box offices. A lot of that shit changing hands, night after night after night. But you go ahead a little bit. That's 1959. I've got some other information from the 70s that shows that really wrestling was as popular in the 70s as it was in the 50s and we're still, you know, it was still an opportunity that normal people could get into wrestling promotion. If, you know, I'm not I'm not talking about a network you know, television broadcasting company or some major conglomerate. I'm talking about these wrestling promoters with a little bit of money and a lot of fucking, you know, perspicacity. You could do this. There is a, a newspaper article that I found again, copy of in my files from the Memphis commercial appeal during the changeover from Jarrett to Goulas with some interesting figures that, Remember, we mentioned that in 1958-59, if you were to believe the commission figures, and that's nothing, the promoters, a lot of people say, well, promoters always inflated their houses. Yeah, to the fans, everything was a sellout. And to the newspapers, yes, yeah, you want to tell everybody you had a ton of people there. But there was never in history a case where a promoter over-exaggerated his gate to the state that he was going to pay taxes on. Have you ever heard of that happening, Brian? No, certainly not. Okay, so point being, facts from this newspaper article came from the Mid-South Coliseum, a city-owned arena, from the television stations, got the Arbitron ratings. We've talked about the big year that Memphis had in 1974. They sold, give or take, it's an estimate, but somewhere around 400,000 tickets. Is that a plus or a minus 10 or 15,000? Maybe. But that's an average of almost 8,000 fans a week. But now there's figures. In 1975 through 1976, the fiscal year, July through June, the Mid-South Coliseum shows grossed $792,649. I believe that was 51 shows. And by the way, in 1976, a dollar equals $5 today. So you can times five and see that that would $800,000 times five is $4 million equivalent in today's money grossing wrestling shows in one arena. The average gate was $15,853. That would translate into $82,545 today per week. The average crowd was 7,000. But then 
Uh, if you want to go annually instead of a fiscal year, 1976, January through December, the Mid-South Coliseum reported that they had sold 335,000 wrestling tickets for 51 dates. That's an average of 6,568 people per week, every week, in the same building. And in October 1976, Memphis Wrestling on television, the Arbitron ratings, which were Nielsen and Arbitron were the two rating services back then. I don't know. Are they still around now, Arbitron? Haven't heard their name in a while. But the wrestling show on on uh, Channel 13 in those days, WHBQ, it would the ratings would actually increase in the early 80s by the time they had moved to WMC. But in 19, 1976, the October book, the wrestling show was viewed in 135,000 households in Memphis. And we had this talk, Brian, a few weeks ago. I don't think we went as far back as 1976, but... In those days, the viewers were not figured. It was households because in 1976, still the majority of uh, better than 50 percentile of the American public still only had one television. So they would figure 2.3 people per household were viewing the program, right? Is that the formula that we came up with or that we researched? Say that it was in. When we researched a couple of weeks ago, right. the number of people in the we were talking about in the late '80s. That's right. It was one point. It was like a high 1.7, 1.8 people, or maybe over, two people. Yeah, it was definitely over one and a half. I forget exactly what it was. Yeah, and then so in the '70s, it was about 2.2 people. Whatever the point is, translates into 283,500 people watching a broadcast from one local television station. And for comparison, October's World Series month, right, Brian? Well, the World it's Series supposed was to be, yes, yeah. The World Series was on in October that, yeah, and the week, the same week that they pulled the rating of one hundred and thirty-five thousand households for the wrestling show, the World Series game that week got one hundred and thirty-six thousand. It was the only television program in Memphis that week that did a higher number than the wrestling show. For comparison also, Sanford and Son, which in 1976 was still top 10 on NBC, did 129,000. So, <laughs> and the population of Shelby County, Tennessee in 1970, and I, I know that there's suburbs of Memphis across the river in Arkansas, but Shelby County, Tennessee, uh, comprises all of the city of Memphis and all of the suburbs in the state of Tennessee. And the population in 1970 was 720,000 people. That means that the wrestling promotion in Memphis was not only selling half of the population of the city's amount in wrestling tickets every year, but nearly half of the population of the town was watching the television show every Saturday morning. And then if you move up the road to Louisville, I'll say one more thing, because I just try to deal in stuff, as I mentioned, a lot of people's memories are shady, and a lot of people extrapolated and didn't have the proper information, but going on facts and figures or eyewitness testimony, I saw this and or just had another 
catch-up call with my old friend Norman Weasel Dooley, who was going to the gardens before I even was and saw those crowds in person. And we've talked about how Jarrett got hot with Louisville and really the first few years after he opened up, 71, 72, 73, 74 were big. And the crowds were, in, in the gardens every week, were considerably bigger, noticeably bigger than they would get later on in the 70s, even though the talent and everything was good and even got better. Because remember, Louisville got the bump for having been dark for five years. There was no wrestling. And suddenly when people found it, it caught on again. There was an initial rush. I remember there were three or four sellouts in, in 1974, clean sellouts. The first Andre the Giant appearance, Lawler and Briscoe for the world title, blah, blah, blah. But you figure, in a 6,000-seat building, they were averaging. And, and we have documentation also, and the closer I got to the business, by the late 70s, they were averaging 3,000 to 3,500 people a week. So in the early 70s, the average was more than more like four to 4,500 at best, and some many bigger than that. So let's say that on minimum, 52 weeks a year, Louisville was selling 200,000 tickets every year in those early 70s years. The population of Jefferson County, Kentucky, at that time, was a little under 700,000. And so that means that they were selling 35% or 30% of the population of the town and the counties in wrestling tickets every year. And those tickets... We know factually, ringside in the first years, ringside was $3, reserved was $2.50, and general admission was $2. And I think after the first year and a half, they bumped it up to $4.350 and $3. Let's say you got an average ticket under $3. If you're selling 200,000 tickets a year, even if, let's say, $500,000 is your total gross, in 1973, 500000 equals $3,336,441 this year. And these were cards most of the time with three or four matches. So again, between the TV ratings and the live event attendance and the repeat business, and this is one company that ran two towns amongst their many other fucking holdings. Is somebody, and then it, I'll tell you one more thing. This is not anecdotal either. This is my documented experience. By the early 80s, 81, 82, when I got in the business and then became privy to the exact gates that were drawn, Memphis never did below 15 grand. I was on one $12,000 house and it was the one of the worst in memory. It was the Sunday afternoon on January 2nd with no Lawler on the card the week after a sellout. You do the math. And I was on the biggest one I was ever on was $46,000. That was a sellout in 1983. But almost every week, the, the house in Memphis was $20,000 or a little more. 50 of those a year, that's a million dollars. A million dollars in 1982 equals over $3 million today. 
So again, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, these towns were drawing the equivalent of millions of dollars every year, over and over, and with towns that were doing the same thing 150, 180 miles away from them. This is not counting Evansville, Indiana, ran every week for what that was worth. And Lexington, Kentucky ran once a month. And Nashville, Tennessee ran every week. Nashville was so hot in the 60s that not only did an opposition promoter come in and try to run against Nick and Roy, but Nick and Roy actually backed another outlaw promoter to try to run the first outlaw out of business. They had three shows a week for a while. Now they run one town twice a year and think, my God, what repeat business we're doing. I'm just fascinated by this shit. And these people, by the virtue of their creativity and their fucking, you know, their audacity and their persistence and their manipulation and their, in some cases, crookedness, were able to set these businesses up that flourished for years and years and fucking years. And I'm fascinated by it. There's no art to today. If you're a billionaire, you can spend a billion dollars and draw a hundred million. Everybody else is fucked. Are you fucked, Brian? It's your show. No, I'm good right now. I'm good right now, too. All right, let's go from the good stuff now to the bad stuff. We go from yesteryear to yesterday and... Boy, I wish I'd written yesterday. I'd be living off the residuals right now. I wouldn't be watching these programs. But anyway, did you catch the Rivals program this past Sunday? Uh, we talked about biography on your show, The drive Through, but we we skipped over the Rivals because I hadn't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, you made me watch it. And uh, yeah. thanks a lot. Well, and before anybody says it, we're not going to knock Rey Mysterio nor Eddie Guerrero. But the program, I think part of the problem is, I know that A&E has just become the WWE network now, taken over for the, you know, the lack of network by everything that they do is centered around the WWE in some way or another. But when they show a biography of a guy and then show him in Rivals the very same night, they're inevitably inevitably uh, duplicating some of the story and some of the comments and or telling the same thing in some slightly different way or whatever. And it sometimes it's a little much, especially on some of these short-term rivalries. But having said that, there was great footage in this. That's the one thing you've got with, with all of the A&E retrospective programs is you get to see you know, footage of these guys when they were good and people gave a shit about the business. I don't know if I would... They prefaced this by saying they were the two biggest Latino stars of all time without any qualification of place. So I know they were going for of all time in modern times in the United States, but El Santo was calling, right? I mean, so... Well, I think it was Obviously. the other. I think it was the Ray documentary that called El Santo. I forget who said it. They didn't know any better. They said he's one of the biggest stars in the history of Mexican wrestling. Like, no, he's the single biggest star. Yeah. Period. 
Well, and I mean, and there, but now think about this. There, there is the case that Ray and Eddie are the two biggest Latino stars in American history on a national basis, because even though there were obviously, you know, regional guys in the territory, the Torres brothers, or who was the, um, the Hispanic star in LA in the 40, Vincent Lopez. I mean, there were, you know, going back to the forties, there were Hispanic stars in this country. And I would think that Gory Guerrero, who we actually got to see some footage on here, uh, Gory Guerrero in Texas was bigger than Eddie or Ray would have been in specifically at El Paso or West Texas or whatever. But for for a mainstream, for a national consumption, international consumption. If you really think well, about I it, well, I guess an international because there none of those guys would have been right. on broadcast on international television. So around the world, yes, but except Mexico, except Mexico. So anyway, we've now we've shucked that all the way down to the cob. <laughs> There's, you know, there, like I said, there was some redundancy necessary to tell the story and make this a standalone program because at some point this is going to air without being prefaced by the biography show. So they've got to do it, but it's a little redundant. I love seeing Brian Hildebrand in so much of the WCW footage. That was fun. And, and again, you could see they made a big point about Ray innovating a lot of this stuff and Eddie being an innovator. And again, you could see that they worked as hard on the contest as they did on the flips. They were innovating shit that they believed that they could do in a pro wrestling match, in a wrestling context, that would look like offensive or defensive maneuvers, spectacular as they were, instead of just coming up with cool moves and cooperating to do them. And I think that's, again, what everybody's lost. And when we see the any of the biographies or any of the rivals documentaries or whatever, we make this comment that all a lot of people took away from it from Mick was bumps and hardcore or from Ray was flips or from whoever was whatever. And they didn't get into the fact that the reason why nobody had ever done that before and why most people shouldn't have done it afterwards is because it was special to that guy and what he could do. But nevertheless, Bischoff was buried again as the clueless putts who didn't understand the meaning of the mask to a luchador. You might as well say I got hired to drive an ice cream truck and I'd never tasted fucking ice cream. So they were best friends and partners. If only there was someone Bischoff could have asked there. I don't know, like Mike Tenay or Conan or <laughs> Rey Mysterio himself or... Anybody in 80 the other of the luchadors. Yeah. <laughs> 80 other wrestlers. Anybody. Anybody. Fuck. Uh, but then, as I said, you know, they go to the WWE. We're, you know, we're not going to go as in-depth on this program because it was a short rivalry. They worked in WCW and they were best friends and partners. And then they went to the WWE and Eddie switched heel. And about halfway in, they got to the who's the father angle, and Bruce again took credit in quotation marks. I say blame. So I zoned out on that segment. I watched the highlights of the ladder match. 
And then, you know, the last part of the show was Ray breaking up. And again, he still breaks up talking about Eddie's death and everybody's reaction. And the, you know, the, uh, the story then that Ray went on to win the Royal Rumble and win uh, WrestleMania in Eddie's honor. And that had just been told on the bio show, but it was told slightly differently. And then Ray visited Eddie's grave. And that's touching and poignant. But I said this about, and actually the the people, the cult of Cornette did not hear last week's Rivals review. It wasn't long. No, we ended up using it. Did we use it? We okay. saved it, yeah. There were audio issues that we thought might preclude that from being a part of it. But I said the same thing last week then. At least with the Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels rivalry rivals episode, you you knew that they really at the time really did fucking hate each other. Even if they've made up since then. And with a few of the other rival, you know, you could kind of there was professional jealousy, or there was a little one upsman show. You could kind of okay. But with who was it was Edge and God damn Cena. it. Edge and Cena. And then Eddie and Ray, I say it's like they're they're going overboard to hug and kiss their rival and talk about how it was all phony and that we always loved each other all along and we could have been family members and God, the love is in the air. Just Jesus Christ. It just takes the piss out of everything for me. So they're overly con- congratulatory to each other on the rivals episodes. And then I just think of the other way to look at it. And the other way to look at it is that this shit from 20 and 30 years ago was so much more convincing and looked so much better and had people so much more excited than the rivalries today and here are the participants coming out and say, yeah, we did it all to fucking give the people a show and it was gaga and blah, blah. And we love each other. And here, come here and let me fondle you sexually or whatever. What do the people that are watching the current shows think about this shit? But they're trying to make people think that this current shit, that there's some edge to it, that there is really something going to happen. And... It doesn't look as good as this shit did that we just established by the admission of the people involved that it was all fucking set up. So now, the only thing that we can believe about wrestling these days is that somebody in the AEW locker room is going to get in a fucking fight and probably punch each other out, but it won't happen on camera because that's where they work. They just shoot in the locker room because they all hate each other. But otherwise, everything's phony. It just it just slaps you in the face with it over and over. What do you think about this program? I didn't really like it. Again, I just kind of saw so much of this in the Rey Mysterio biography, and the story was told a lot better there. And even there, I don't like everything once they start doing the paternity angle. I didn't <laughs> like it at the time. I thought it was... I don't even care about the bad tasting. It was just stupid, and you knew that it wasn't... You just knew it was bullshit, like you said. Yeah. Didn't like it then, don't like it now, and then it just it gets very uncomfortable. You know, they talk a lot about Eddie. I mean, the whole Eddie's the focus of the whole thing, obviously, but by the end of it, when they talk about his death and, and 
how he was discovered and everything. It's it's a heavy thing. So it starts off as one thing, these young, enthusiastic cruiserweights showing everyone in WCW what they could do. And at the end, it's just uh, it's quite sad. But I just saw the biography, so I was kind of sick of all this. I hate to say that, but I wasn't ready for another hour after those two hours. That may have been the problem. It might have been better standing on its own, but when we'd just seen some of that ground plowed before, we knew no no new corn was going to pop up an hour later. But anyway, speaking of new things popping up, apparently there is all kinds of shit going on in the WWE in a positive manner that's making the fans lose their rabid-ass minds. And on the other side of the street, there's a lot of things that is making the locker room lose their rabid-ass minds. And the fans are kind of puzzled. So, what am I hearing? Is Triple H now just coming out and saying I'm changing shit because I'm in charge now? I'm the guy. It's me all along. I don't think that's exactly what he's been saying. And I have not heard this audio yet. This has actually been breaking while we've been recording here, but... Triple H spoke to Ariel Hawani uh, in the top corner of the screen here. It says BT Sports. So I guess that's who employs Ariel Hawani right now. And let's play some audio. We'll break it up when there's something worth talking about. It's just about a minute and a half here. I think initially people thought, oh, you know, he'll still be kind of running the show from afar, texting you, whatever. But I think over the past month, it has become very clear, this is your show. So there is, like, he has nothing to do with the product anymore. And one of the things that he, you know, I don't want to say outright said, but alluded to me, he's like, look, you're going to do things. You cannot think about how I would do things. You have to think about what you want to do and how you feel like it's best for the product. You know, I might not like it, but I understand why you're going to do the things you're going to do. You have to do what you feel is right. Um, Can I jump in there? It is. Yeah. Because I believe him. Because that, to me, the Vince McMahon that I knew, that is exactly what he would say. And I can believe that 100%. Because now, bear in mind, I don't think Vince wanted to go. And he sure didn't go quietly and or on purpose. But once the deed is done, that's one thing you got to say about Vince. Okay, he will fight and scratch and claw and dig to whatever to get his way or to get out of something or get what he wants. But once he examines a situation and says, okay, this is the way it is, now we got to work with this, then he'll do that. And I have, I believe in my heart that he sat there and said to Triple H, all right, all those things he just said. Because Vince still owns a massive amount of that thing. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to see things go sideways. And right now, everything's doing well. The ratings are up. Buzz is up. People are optimistic. And so uh, now it would might be a different thing if this time next year business is half of what they've been doing and Vince has a lot of ideas and nobody's listening and the ship is sinking, then it might, the demeanor of everybody might change a little bit. But I believe that statement right there. All right, well, let's see if you believe the rest of this. Let's go back to Triple H speaking with Ariel Hawani. It's a tough uh, thing to get to. 
no one works together for that long of a period of time and goes, I, you know, you all, everybody would think to themselves, well, I would have done that slightly differently. You know, doesn't mean it's right or wrong. We, we use the term all the time in the business, chocolate and vanilla, right? I want chocolate, you want vanilla. One of us has to pick a flavor. He would always pick the flavor. Now it's my turn to pick the flavor. Right. Um, <laughs> it's all good. It's all ice cream, right? But it's it's my time to pick the flavor, and, and I have to be confident in those decisions. And I can't look back and say, well, what would Vince want to have for a flavor? You know, because it, it just wouldn't be authentic then. Well, there it is, Jim Triple H speaking with Ariel Hawani. I get to pick the flavor. I've heard that ice cream analogy for 30 years now. They love the ice cream analogy, chocolate and vanilla. Sometimes it's horse poop flavored fucking cow pie. Uh, but usually chocolate and vanilla, and he's the guy picking the ice cream now. And for better or worse, uh, I think Vince is going to accept that. And like I said, unless something ridiculous happens. And then Vince would view it as a, the ship is going down and all hands have to be on deck and save this thing somehow. But that ain't happening. And I don't, I don't know if it's possible for their business as, as well as it's integrated with everything as established as they are in so many different places, so many guaranteed sources of revenue, I don't know that it can completely fall apart in any, you know, reasonable period of time. So that time may never come. But um, but we got a new ice cream fucking chef here in town. He's going to pick the flavor. We'll see what the flavor tastes like. They love their analogies. There's the chocolate and vanilla analogy, and the other one is sometimes you have to eat shit and like it. Yeah, <laughs> and usually the shit that they were eating was the fucking ice cream that they had produced. <laughs> and and also now, am I hearing, was Braun Strowman a Triple H guy? Is the, the rumors are he's coming back into the fold. He's had a busy wrestling career since WWE. He has. He had, what, he did two outlaw shows with the fucking character. That control your narrative, Triple H is controlling the narrative and the ice cream. Has he hired back almost everybody that was running that fucking thing? It seems like he's hired back almost everyone. There's even some behind-the-scenes hires lately, and of course the Road Dog just went back, most notably. But Braun Strowman, who came out of NXT, the word is he's back. He's expected at Raw. We talked about this on the Wrestling News. And... He may have been the most vocal proponent of CYN, Control Your Narrative. Seemed like he enjoyed engaging with AEW fans on Twitter and fighting with them. And now he's back. I believe the last time we saw him, was he... Actually, I don't even know. I was going to say, the last time we saw him, he was drowned by the Fiend. I don't know if he... I don't know if that was the last time. He may have come back from his drowning. I don't no, I, th- I think I think he I think he drowned. This guy will probably have benefited from being away for a while. How long has it been? A year, year and a half? Give or take. Something like that. At least a year. I think he will benefit greatly because Braun Strowman is a classic example of how can I miss you if you won't go away. When you've seen him for a couple months, you've seen it, right? He's fucking big. He's a giant. He runs around the ring in a circle and hits somebody with a half-ass shoulder tackle. There's, you know, they tried special effects. He turns over a bus, whatever. 
I mean, you know, he's the kind of guy that in wrestling of the territories, he would have been a major attraction because you give him some kind of fucking gimmick. And then like Andre, he goes from ter territory to territory as a special partner or an enforcer or, you know, we're going to bring this giant monster in to fight the Weasley local heel or whatever. And you could make tons of money off a guy like that because he can do some shit and he's fucking huge. It's just once you see it, you've seen it. There's no great Braun Strowman match. There's no great Braun Strowman promo. There's no great Braun Strowman anything. But you can plug a fucking guy like that. Remember, we've talked about how to steal a house or steal a pay-per-view. If he's around every week, it doesn't make any difference, and people get tired of it because it's the same thing over and over, and there's certain things you can't do with him because he's too fucking big. But if he's an attraction or presence or something that comes in and out, then you can focus on him briefly, intersperse him with talented people that can make up for the drabness and use his size. But then you can't see that all the time or it gets old, which is what it did before, which is why they realized we're paying this guy a couple million dollars or whatever it was and who gives a shit. Because he'd been there for all that time. Well, now he's had a break for a year and a half. If they figure out some way to bring him back, maybe with a little different look and something more interesting. Different look? Well, I do? mean, just... He's seven feet I tall. I mean, just... I don't mean a different guy. I don't mean plastic surgery. I'm talking about maybe update his fucking clothing or make him look like something. I don't fucking know. But uh, But he's been away for a while, so... Now he'd come in, smash somebody, make an impact. Might be worth it for a little while. And they just got to watch how they use him and how much they use him. Because if they're signing him for three years, he isn't three years worth of interesting unless they cycle him in and out or give him something to be interesting about or align him with somebody else that is interesting. But he is big. You can work with that. You know, it is interesting because Triple H has now brought back several names, some notable, that had come out of his training system that were misused on the main roster or people that were used fairly well and then Vince just decided to release them. I can also tell you a lot of the scuttlebutt amongst wrestlers right now, independent wrestlers of note who travel, traveling indie wrestlers, I guess we'll say, and even some people in AEW. There is a general excitement right now about the idea of Triple H being in charge. And for the first time in quite a while, people are excited about the idea of possibly working for WWE. And as long as they take care of that, you know, that sentiment, the honeymoon period should last. And then they're going to have more pick of more talent because at the same time, and whether you like... Tony Khan's booking, if you can call it that, or not. You know, the guys, they... Before, it was like, well, if I'm going to be fucking persecuted by a an evil billionaire, then I could just go over here and play with my friends. Suddenly, it's going to be, but wait a minute, there's a chance with the oldest, most established company in the business, and the largest, uh, to actually do what I'd like to do here now, even if it might not be as fun personally, it'd be better business-wise for my career. That's going to be a 
you know, a, a thing they got to think about. So unless, I mean, that may be, uh, we may see more of the Cucamonga contingent and their friends and close family members and cousins and whatever pets come into the company because the real legitimate talent maybe once again thinking about the WWE. So it, it's going to hurt AEW one way or another that more guys want to work for WWE now than did when Vince was there. And it, the WWE now can tweet one word and people lose their fucking shit over it. The, did you see the WWE official Twitter account just tweeted wrestling? Just one word, wrestling, not even capitalized. And people went out of their fucking minds. It, because I guess whoever runs the Twitter account is just like, well, we can say this shit now. But isn't it how bad have things been and how stupid have things been over the last number of years when you a wrestling promotion can tweet the word wrestling and the fans get happy about it? I'm just, I'm amazed. What do you think is going to happen when they tweet the word belt? <laughs> they ought to say, I've won a, a wrestling belt in a match. Anyway, you want to talk about um, no this past week's? No, no I know you don't, no. but, but we have to. No, no, we don't. <laughs> a lot of people have been asking for me to watch Raw now because things are getting better. And I be, I know they're bringing some talent back. I know they're allowed to say wrestling. I know that Triple H is picking the ice cream now. I'm not poo-pooing them. I'm not shushing them. But Raw's got a long way to fucking go. Because it's a long thing to begin with. Three, can you make three hours any good unless it's a pay-per-view level event every week? You could if you could be creative with the time. They're not very creative with the time. Unfortunately, right now, the excitement over the Triple H era seems to be that there's at least one segment a week that's different. That's it. Because the rest well, of the show, so much of the show seems the same. In three hours, if you can only figure out a way to make one segment different, you got some more figuring to do. And I still say the problem is is not is it's not the talent. It's unfortunately the environment that the talent has been forced to operate in because this show and these fans and this company have trained people and taught them that the matches are just there and not really important and. So people just kind of sit there and watch them. And every once in a while with somebody they really like, they'll get into it. But otherwise, the the opening match was AJ Styles and Dolph Ziggler against Damian Priest and Finn Balor with good old Rhea Ripley in the corner. And besides the fact AJ's been floating for a while, Dolph, they beat, and then they bring back, and then they beat him like a drum and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, this should have been Priest and Edge. Or Priest and Finn with Edge in the corner, or I Priest and Rhea with Edge, whatever the fuck. But they've either they they make the matches meaningless, and then they've put the talents in positions where they're 
beaten like drums and then just resurrected to go into something else and people are supposed to care. And, it, you know, it, all four of these guys are good workers. And I figured I'll watch it even though I don't like now that they've screwed the Judgment Day up, taking Edge out, putting Balor in, but I'll I'll watch it because they're all good workers, right? So, and by the way, the Judgment Day's entrance again is what the House of Black was trying to do, and they just didn't want to hire a lighting fucking supervisor. But they ring the bell to start this match seven minutes into the show, after all the entrances and blah, blah. So the match starts, they go less than a minute and a half, and they go to the break. You can't get out of these goddamn 20-minute interviews. You can't make them leave the goddamn five-minute entrance, but as soon as the match starts, oh, time for a commercial. So they come back. They get a little heat on Ziggler. They do simultaneous cold tags to AJ and Priest at the same time. I don't know what the situation is with AJ and Priest. They were awkward with each other. I like both guys against other people. It didn't... It, the match never took off. The people didn't seem to care. AJ and Priest didn't mesh well. And then finally, they did the old Rock and Roll Express backdrop roll-up spot. AJ and Ziggler did, and... That was nice, and then Priest hit Ziggler with a nice-looking sidewalk choke slam. one, two, three, and it was over with. I don't think six minutes of this aired on television between the entrances and the commercial break or whatever, actually six minutes of the match, and it was what it was. Before we get into the afterbirth, any comments that I missed? Now, you hit on one of the biggest problems, and we just talked about it, and not everyone agrees with me, about Sheamus on SmackDown. But Dolph Ziggler, especially, but even AJ now, I've seen so much of them every time I've ever watched their show the last few years, and Dolph never wins. I've never, I've not seen Dolph Ziggler present, Ziggler, I have not seen <laughs> Dolph Ziggler presented in a good fashion, probably since, in what, like 10 years? Well, except in NXT. In NXT, He and Rude yeah. go down there and they're stealing the fucking show and having a great match. We get that for three weeks, and then, and where's Bobby Roode? Jesus Christ, can they send him to AEW so we can have something to watch over there? That's one of the problems. Laura stole the Rolodex with all the Canadian phone numbers, so they can't <laughs> get in touch with Bobby Roode. He's waiting by the phone for Triple H to call. But other than that, it was fine. I still agree with you about Finn Bauer not being a good fit with not just the whole Judgment Day thing, but him and Damian Priest. I don't know. Damian Priest, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mesh well to me. Rhea Ripley... Well, let isn't... Let's get to the interview. Okay, yeah, go. Because that's where they don't... Because Edge pulls up in the parking lot, and so Judgment <laughs> Day sees this and stays in the ring. Shocked. And starts doing a promo. Shocked that he is there. And Rhea Ripley dares him to come on out there, and then they give the microphone to Finn, and he speaks. And he's mad about Edge, and Ray gets documentaries, and Edge gets documentaries. Where's my documentary? The problem is, Priest takes over and then sounds like a grown man. Finn Balor sounds like a fucking Irish Opie Taylor. You know, whining. like And Priest is a foot taller than Finn Balor. Priest has a deep man's voice. The rookies, Priest and Rhea, 
are the stars of the group and Finn looks like the stooge and there is no obvious leader. So here comes Edge out and he does a good promo because he can talk, but his turn was premature and forced. And he tells them that he didn't come alone. And suddenly the Mysterios hit the ring with kendo sticks and wear the judgment day out, or at least Finn and Priest wear them out with the kendo sticks. And they're all in the big schmas. And then Dominic is left in the ring with Rhea Ripley. And Dominic has the kendo stick. <laughs> and he's the one that looks scared. Rhea Ripley's laughing at him, telling him to put the stick down. Dominic. It has the stick looking at Rhea Ripley like he's seen a grizzly bear about to attack him and he's backing up into a cave and and everybody else in this deal has magically disappeared and time stands still. And then Ripley magically somehow just makes Dominic stand there and takes the stick away from him. And then Edge and Ray roll slide back in and are standing beside Dominic and Rhea's standing them off and Priest and Finn pull her out. So is Dominic a pussy or a traitor? What the He's a he's a good guy and he doesn't want to do anything that would hurt a woman. Okay, but why was he standing there looking scared shitless of the woman that was laughing at him when he's got a kendo stick and she's laughing at him? Put the stick down, you little ineffective little fucking kid. Well, he's having that debate in his head about what to do. He knows what he should do. He's scared. He doesn't know where his dad is. <laughs> Daddy! Daddy! <sighs> but that was that. And then everybody walked off. Then they had Bianca and yeah. Alexa and Oscar. I'm starting to think they would be better with the supernatural elements that we were promised. Judgment. No, Day. they wouldn't. They wouldn't. No, they would have been better if they'd have just left them alone when they started. Oh yeah, yeah. Bianca and Alexa and Oscar against Danny and Kay and Hoochie Macoochie. I don't know who the. There were three job girls against the top girls, and they had a match. Six girl tag team match. Then, did you see Adam Pierce with Miz and Tommaso Ciampa? Yes, I did. Ladies and gentlemen, last week, Dexter Loomis, out of the crowd in a disguise, snatched the Miz, pulled him over the barricade, hauled him out of the arena bodily, took him off due, who knows what to him, who knows where. Well, this week, Miz is back with Champa and poor old Adam Pierce, who has to fucking put up with all this foolishness. And Pierce is offering Miz counseling in case anything happened, he needs to talk to somebody about. And apparently, Miz and Champa were shocked to find out that Loomis is out roaming free, even though they didn't press charges. So the cops let him go, and Miz doesn't want to talk about the whole thing. The first time in the history of wrestling, you do an angle on television, and then the next week, the talent doesn't want to talk about it. But they did do a spot later on in the program where Miz and Champa are walking down the hallway, 
and they walk by a security guard that is Dexter Loomis standing there in front of a fucking door as a security guard. And the camera gets off of it for a second, and Miz does a double take and looks around, and when you turn the camera back in that direction, you see it's a regular security guard, not Dexter Loomis, even though he was on camera a minute ago. And they're not playing it up like that we're all playing tricks on the Miz. We're they're playing it up like the Miz is seeing this guy everywhere he goes, and we're supposed to believe this. So, so Champa is stuck as partners with Miz as Miz is flunky, and they're doing shit where they see hobgoblins. Is Loomis still married to Indy Hartwell? I don't know. Maybe they got it annulled when fucking Johnny Sameface put the sh fake shark fin on and tried to keep him from fucking on the beach. So then Kurt Angle was introduced because he lives in Pittsburgh and he's a Hall of Famer and he's an Olympic gold medalist. And here comes Kurt Angle and he gets in the ring and says, hello, Pittsburgh. And by the time he starts to open his mouth again, he gets shooshed by the Alpha Academy, Gable and Otis, and they went to break. I swear to fucking God, somebody at, if responsible for that program thinks that it's a better tease to go to the break to have Kurt Angle come out in Pittsburgh and get shooshed by the Alpha Academy instead of just Kurt Angle coming out in Pittsburgh He's next. Because if they had said, here comes Kurt Angle in Pittsburgh and he's next, then I would have been excited to see what the fuck was next. But since here came Kurt Angle in Pittsburgh and immediately here comes the Alpha Academy and now I know it's going to be foolishness with job guys, I couldn't wait for it to be over with. There's all kinds of ways they could have presented this. This is not one of them. And also the fact that they're using Kurt Angle with two fucking nitwits. Four minutes later, they come back. They're in the ring with Kurt Angle. This is what they come up with for Kurt Angle in Pittsburgh. They offer him a spot in Alpha Academy while insulting his hometown. And it takes forever. And Kurt declines it. And then Gable shooshes him. And I swear to God, this was the exchange. Did you sh just shush me? And Gable said, I do the shushing around here. And then they started screaming shush at each other over and over again. And I started fast forwarding. And apparently the Street Profits came in and somehow they made a tag team match between these fucking brainless mutants. And by the time it was over with, the promo and the match was 30 minutes of television time, and that's how they used Kurt Angle. Shooshing a fucking job guy. You know, the saddest thing about it is, I don't know about the time, maybe three years ago, four years ago, the idea of Chad Gable, the collegiate wrestler, Olympic-level wrestler, I forget what he was exactly in NXT, of that guy doing something with Kurt Angle, that would have been exciting. But now... Brilliant! Now he's acting like this. How much longer can this go? Triple H is making all these changes. He knows what this guy could do before he had to cut his hair. Yeah, but at the same time, this... that No, this guy's way past redemption. 
he would have to be gone for a year or two. To As good as he was in those tag team matches in NXT, you can't just start doing that again after this gimmick. This is a Red Rooster kind of thing. It's silly, go-away fucking heat with any grown adult. The only... the. <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, honestly, this guy's time in wrestling is drawing to a close. Unless he wants to do something outside of W. I don't think AEW would hire him coming off a gimmick like this on television. Chad Gable? And And does he have any friends over there? That's the determining factor. But why would you want a guy that's been presented like this on the biggest television in the world? And these fans aren't going to forget about it. He can't just overnight become a normal human being and a good wrestler again. It's got to, you got to forget about it. If Triple H likes him enough, I'd say give him a contract for a couple of hundred grand for a year to just stay home and keep in shape and then bring him back, hopefully with his hair grown out and a different name. Maybe they won't know it's him. Uh, But unless you want to make that commitment to pay a guy to just stay home for a year, this guy's useless to anybody at this point. When do you think it's appropriate and when would it work? And I'm surprised more people haven't done it like you did with Tracy Smothers in Smoky Mountain, where you actually just have kind of a very heartfelt, normal conversation with someone who says, yeah, you know, you saw me and I'm not really from Wyoming and yeah, I did these things, but you guys know who I really am and I'm going to show you what I can really do. Could that work? I mean, a modern version of that for a national audience as opposed to I'm just like the kid down the street, like what Tracy was. Could that work? Well, but it's 30 years later and they're smarter. And here's the thing. Tracy had to, instead of being the Southern boy from Tennessee, had to be a young pistol from Wyoming or Montana. Was it Wyoming or Montana? Where was Cheyenne, Wyoming. There you go. Cheyenne, Wyoming. And And he got beat a lot. And that would, he still didn't have to do childish shit like shush and act in these horrible, bizarre ways over and over for months on, on end. So yes, the people, then they were sympathetic to Tracy and that, yeah, he is a good old boy. Just, he didn't, you know, they made him say he was from Wyoming and, and implied, but not outright stated was. And they made him, you know, lose those matches. Uh, But he was still a guy that you liked and wanted to see succeed and hadn't done just stupid comedy fake shit and just came out over and over screaming, wrestling is fake and so am I. This guy would have to come out and say, well, for the past fucking however many years, they've made me act like a complete idiot, say a bunch of stupid shit, and childish, and fuck, and then that would remind people, yeah, and you went along with it. Tracy went along with a goddamn change of his hometown, and he couldn't say he was from Tennessee, and yeah, he probably did have to fucking look up at the lights, you know, for some of those big contract players or whatever, but he didn't have to come out and just apologize for being an ignorant fucking ass for years. So, yeah, I mean, there's a limit because at some point, the, the that's why the only wrestling fans left are the wrestling fans who like it for what they know it is because normal people would go, well, this fucking guy, he's got no balls. He's 
out there doing what this, they tell him to do and saying what they tell him to say and and whining and crying about how it's always been his dream to be there? What kind of pussies are these? That's the problem. Normal people don't like wrestlers anymore because they're they're pussies. And they do and say and act as they're told. The appeal was amongst the wrestling fans of the previous hundred years, these guys are out of control and they're going into business for themselves and they're they're liable to do whatever. Somebody's got to stop this shit. Now it's like, look at what they got this fucking clown doing this week. <sighs> it's frustrating. Are you ready for it, you know, I'm just gonna I'm <laughs> just gonna say it's frustrating with a guy like that because we know what he's shown that he could do. You said, does he have any friends over there? I don't know if they're friends, but again, American Alpha and FTR, the revival, were the matches that kind of made us pay attention to both well, teams. Goddamn, FTR needs some friends. Look at what's happening to them. They don't have the right friends over there. You got to have the friends that matter, the friends that Tony likes, so that they can get you a job. The Riddle and Rollins segment on Raw we talked about last week because we rushed up and watched that, and that was... On the drive-thru. Yes, on the, well, I, I'm sorry, last show on the drive-thru, yes, because that was creating a, quite a bit of a stir, and, and even though they bleeped more on the the video they put out online than they actually did on network television or national cable television, but but that, I mean... It's something. Now are you watching Raw for the Easter egg of the the segment that actually looks like wrestling and sounds like that people just came up with it rather than it being scripted, but I'd love to see the whole three-hour program that way. I'm not talking about chaos either and fights in the parking lot. I'm talking about a three-hour wrestling program like they used to have where the shit just seems like it's happening at the time. It's not hard to do. Just got to know how to do it. The United States title was on the line with Bobby Lashley against The Miz. And again, poor Champa in the corner of The Miz. Miz is traumatized. That was a word that was used. Traumatized and distracted by what went on with uh, Loomis last week to the point he was working in a t-shirt that said, my balls are massive. I guess he's trying to get heel heat for lying. And, of course, Lashley ripped it off of him. Again, this match, big U.S. title match, big entrances. They start the match. After two minutes, they go to the break, and Corey Graves' pitch to the break was inadvertently very apropos. His, his quote as they went to the commercial was, This is hard to watch. He wasn't trying to say what I was thinking, but it still was. That's what you think, Corey. So they come back, and Champa distracts Lashley, and Miz takes over, and the fans are sitting on their hands. Lashley makes a comeback. Nobody cares. I'm not knocking Lashley here. We know I like Lashley. I like Champa. They are put in these positions where the matches are meaning, and the people in the arena also, I think they kind of have to know when something's in commercial. If they're paying any attention, they do. And it's just, the wrestling matches are the only thing that they won't show on this fucking program. So, 
Finally, Lashley goes for a spear. Champa pulls Miz out on the floor. Miz rolls back in with a foreign object. The referee is backing him up. And while... Did you understand this? Miz has what looked like a plastic Ziploc bag as a foreign (laughs) object in his hand. Right. And the referee is backing him up. And so that the referee won't see the object, apparently he throws it down behind his back. It goes a foot away from him and lays there on the mat. And while the referee is is dealing with all this, Champa just comes in and blasts Lashley from behind. And down he goes, and then the Miz hits a DDT and gets a two count. Why did they do all that shit then? And then Miz tries to hook his finish, the Dennis Condry face buster that he stole. And he gets a horrified look on his face and points to the general admission section. And they're up in the bleachers of the arena in a spotlight so you can see him well, is Dexter Loomis. The guy that's supposed to be doing unauthorized attacks, perpetrating them on Miz, he's not supposed to be around, but he made sure to tell the lighting director to get him a spotlight so that we could see him at the appropriate time. And Miz is horrified and freaked out and turns his back on Lashley, and Lashley puts the hurt lock on, and Miz taps out. And then Loomis just turns around and leaves, I guess. So it was a rotten match with a rotten finish that nobody cared about. Did that sum it up? Yeah. You said it before. I I mean, these shows now, it's one segment. And you should know better. I mean, we should all know better. Once you get to that segment, you can kind of bail on the rest of the show. I just wish they'd try. I just wish they'd try. So Edge and Angle were in the locker room, and Edge gives Kurt some pictures that he's drawn of some of their interaction in the past, and apparently was this a play off of something they did 20 years ago during the Attitude Era that all the writers remember and a small portion of the fans might, but I don't, where that everything that the pictures that Edge gave to Angle had insulting shit written on the back that he was holding up to the camera without knowing it. Do you know? I have no idea. I have no idea. But it was a heartwarming little thing back there. Uh, And look out, Dominic Mysterio's about to turn on his father because Ray has told Dominic that he can't be his partner at the pay-per-view, but he can be in the corner. And with whatever interplay's been going on with Judgment Day, obviously... Don't start reading any continued stories, Dominic, as they used to say. Uh, They turn you heel on your dad. This could be the beginning of the end. Sammy Zayn. God damn it. Did you ever think you'd have to see the day where Sammy Zayn was the most entertaining thing on the fucking program? Because I don't know how long. Where's Paul E? Is that modified F5 on the announce desk going to keep him out for six months? He'll be back soon. I hope so. Uh, Because without him, Sami Zayn is it as far as an orator on the program. But the Usos and Sami Zayn in the ring, this Friday is Roman's two-year anniversary as champion. Sami's going to be master of ceremonies. Zayn is... (laughs) 
he's hilarious and not even phony. It's like you can believe this is the guy that proves the exception of the rule. This is one of those guys. He can get away with this fucking rotten material and his phony bullshit because he does it so well and you believe that this guy is a blithering simpleton. He's a genius, if that makes any sense. I like him. Didn't like working with him. I like watching him on TV. Somebody else has to have the fucking headache of dealing with him on a personal basis. And so anyway, then here comes Owens because obviously Roman Reigns has given Sammy the the message that he doesn't know anybody, anything, anywhere, anytime, blah, blah, blah. So here comes Owens and Sammy delivers that message. And Owens says that Sammy's embarrassing himself, hanging around with the bloodline. It's sad what he's become. And Jay tells Owens to leave or else, and Owens doesn't leave. Remember, did did anything ever, I forgot, fuck, we got disgusted and stopped watching Raw. Remember when Owens was coming out when he was a heel still, I think? Telling people you better do something or else, and then he'd be the one to leave when they didn't? Did that ever resolve itself, or was he just fucking mad because they wouldn't do anything or else? I'm not sure. I mean, that it's not the build-up to the Steve Austin thing. I don't remember. I don't know. They had him give... Remember, they had him giving ultimatums to people. You're going to do such and such or else, and then they didn't do it, and he just walk off. All right. Anyway... Uh, Owen says on Friday they can celebrate two years of Jay having his head up his cousin's ass, but tonight they're going to fight. And that's when Owens, and this was an okay segment until we got to this point. And then because Owens is too cool for school and too cute for his own good and has to wink at everybody all the time, he's got to say, this is the part where we drop the mic, get a referee and start and just fight. Like, this is the part in the fake, choreographed, scripted wrestling world. This is one of the tropes. He was fine till we got there. I would have fined him a significant amount of money for saying it that way. Um, And he didn't have to say it that way. He just wants to be cute and wink at the smart fans. So I would have fined his ass for that. But, of course, up there, nobody's paying any attention. But... What he told me was that, okay, they're going to the break, but this is a phony setup deal, and they came to the part in the fucking thing where it's time for him to fight, so since it's all phony, I don't give a shit. So I skipped the match. Maybe next time, Owens will say, well, in that case, it's you and me, we're going to have a fight right now, and we'll see what happens at the end, and then I'll stick around to the end. But since he said, well, it's... Now, this is the part where we drop the microphone, get a referee, and have a fake fight. I don't give a shit. So, the finish of the match was Owens hit a splash off the top and got a two count. And then they both rolled to the floor, and Owens got in Zanes' face, and Jay hit Owens with a dive. And then they tell Sammy to get a chair and hit Owens, but he's reluctant to hit his old friend. And by the time that he waffles about it, he loses his chance when the referee turns around. So when all the heels are arguing with Sammy about not using the chair, Owens hit Jay with a stunner and pinned him one, two, three. And there you go. So again, 
the tag team champions that are supposed to stand on their own in the tag team division get beat like drums in every single match they have and it, against anybody else that's not in a tag team program with them because then they're playing the part of Roman Reigns' flunkies, which they do great, but it's why I will never take them seriously as a top tag team or tag team champions because they're doing a better job being flunkies to the biggest box office attraction currently in the company instead of doing whatever the fuck else they're doing with these tag teams. I don't know. How'd you feel? I didn't give a crap about any of this. You summed up all my thoughts. <laughs> I kind of wish Kevin Owens had gone to AEW when there was that threat that he was going to go there before he signed back for a lot of money. Just because, I don't know, I'm kind of sick of him too. Well, there are a lot of the same people. Speaking of same people and same faces, Johnny Sameface was doing a sit-down interview in the bleachers. And, my God... I've used the phrase before, but not in a, in a while. A black hole of charisma. Not only does he have no charisma himself, but he sucks the charisma into himself from those around him with the gravitational pull that he has. And then here comes Austin Theory walking in being a star and shit. And I'm wondering, what... Why didn't fucking Johnny call him as his deal that he wants to know because old Johnny is whining about theory never checking on him? Well, why didn't Johnny Sameface ever call him? Because he was jealous of Austin Theory being at WrestleMania, being the Money in the Bank winner, blah, blah, blah. But welcome to Raw now, Johnny, because you're swimming with the sharks now. And again, I'm I'm just mortified that they're going to bog theory down with this fucking twit. Anyway, then we go to the Women's Tag Team Championship Finals. It was Dakota Kai and EO Sky against Ilea and Raquel Gonzalez Rodriguez de la Romero III. Rodriguez went from a badass in black to Donna Fargo. She is now, she's smiling. They've softened her hair. She, she's, apparently they're holding her family hostage unless she smiles every second of the day. They put her in lighter colors. She's the happiest girl in the whole USA. And that was the main event on Raw, folks. The flagship program from the Attitude Era that brought you Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, Mick Foley, The Rock, and so many more. The main event was the Women's Tag Team Championship Tournament Final. Kai and Sky against Aaliyah and poor old Raquel. They got a lot of work to do, Brian. Who do you think will win a match between Kai and Ty and Kai and Sky? Oh, that's so good. If only we had a time machine, we could book Kai and Ty against Kai and Sky. Boy, howdy. And who do you think would win? You're ignoring the question. I think Kai and Ty would win. Because Taka Michinoku is still a grown adult man. (laughs) Not really, though. I think uh, Eo Sky could take Taka Michinoku. And you know what? Even... Taka Michinoku and and Dick Togo and those guys they Dick didn't Togo, have Togo, yes. Yeah. 
And the other one, I can't remember what his name was ever. Grand um, Naniwa? Super Delphin? No. No. The Great Sasuke? No. Funaki? The one that was in the group of Funaki. That's who I'm thinking of. They didn't have to go out there and act all constipated and like they were desperately trying to take a shit all the time or, you know, run around like they were six years old, except for the choppy, choppy, your pee-pee. And at least they were old enough to know what a pee-pee was and where to find one. And that was Wally. <laughs> and that was Wally Gamaguchi, too. So there you go. Oh, well, that was Raw and the uh, week in the WWE world. By the way, speaking of the week in wrestling news, what is going on this week at the 605, the Arcadian Vanguard Network, and the new flagship program, the Wrestling Newscast? Well, thank you very much, Jim. Another action-packed week on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes, and really we'll talk about the big one. This week was the launch of the Wrestling News. We've talked about it the last several weeks. Been teasing it for a lot longer than that on the show, if you know what to listen for. It's now up. Every single morning, a daily Wrestling Newscast. Not very long. Get all the news in, just the facts. No opinion, no star ratings, nothing but the Wrestling News. Hear it today. Subscribe today. Wherever you find your favorite podcast, go to The Wrestling News or look for The Wrestling News, Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News. It's everywhere. Subscribe today. Give it a shot. It'll be a constant work in progress, but we have a lot of cool things we're working on. You'll get breaking news updates. We're going to have investigative reports into big issues in and around wrestling. A lot of things, but we're starting with the Daily Wrestling Newscast. Subscribe today. The Wrestling News. Who knows, Jim, maybe one of these days you'll be in the news. I'll have my team cover you. Camped outside Castle Cornet. I don't want to be in the news anymore. Generally, when I'm in the news or in the newspaper, it costs me money. Well, the wrestling news won't cost you money. No clickbait, no paywall, just the wrestling news. Again, wherever you find your favorite podcast or go to thewrestlingnews.com. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Membership! Go through the archive today at 605pod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts, The Mothership. All right, now that my ears are still ringing Mothership, let's, uh, let's go across the street and examine the week in AEW, or as we like to term it, the North and the South. <laughs> Who's the, the, uh, the favorite to win the Civil War over there in AEW, I wonder, the trampoline cowboys are the real wrestlers they're they're choosing sides they're they're uh, taking their their corners and they're ready to go at each other maybe it'll be more interesting than the television program if they could just put a camera on the locker room for the fights now who is um who's asked to get out this week before we talk about the program we've heard malachi black apparently wants a release from his contract please tony do something for the wrestling fans and let Malachi Black out of his contract. Well, for the record, it's a rumor. It's not a confirmed story, and AEW has denied it so far. Well, even if they do, it would still be a gift to the wrestling fans if we could let Malachi Black out of his contract. 
so that we don't have to see that. Have you ever seen anybody drop the ball any worse on what was at the start, at least, an interesting idea? This guy had interest. He had goodwill from the people because they knew he'd been or they believed he had been jacked around in the WWE and in that system. And okay, now we're going to see what he can do. And he and he's going to work with Cody right off the bat. He's treated like a top guy. And then all of the... And you know this had to be his. All of the... Remember we talked about it, the mind games and the supernatural and the black vomit and the stupid mist and all the other shit. Controlling the electricity and lights. Controlling the electricity, the goofy cable access dark entrance that they can't get down. It takes too long. But he was constantly coming up with some... He couldn't just have a match. He had to have the mind games involved and all that stuff. And it just brought everything to a dead halt. And there was nobody that was able to take the concept that he had and show him how to actually fucking do it. They just let him do his shit. And it's been a mess. And now nobody gives a shit. And it's the same thing in the other company with poor old Gable. Only this guy had the look to be a top guy, especially in AEW where everybody's, you know, so diminutive. But now, who gives a shit? Nobody cares. And he's got two more fat, tattooed up guys, you know, tattooed up guys hanging around with him that look and do the same shit. So he doesn't even stand out. So if he wants, you know, if he wants to go, go, you got two more. You know how badly he doesn't stand out? One of those guys isn't fat. He's jacked up like he's on the fucking Hercules Hernandez diet. The problem is, he came in, everything you said is right, and had the whole spy versus spy thing going with him and Cody. Cody was in white, <laughs> he was in black. Yeah. It was cool. People really liked him. The kick looked incredible. The entrance is okay until you start introducing the constant smoky promos that are rehearsed, where you're speaking in such an unnatural way, but it's not that someone else is scripting it for you. It's almost like you're scripting it for yourself. And you're walking out of smoky bowels of where? Where is the cameraman told to go to do this? I think that stuff dragged all of this down. There was that segment that was incredibly awful with the Varsity Blondes, if you remember, where Julia Hart finally turned heel. Yeah. They have not done him any favors, but I think he hasn't done himself any favors as far as uh, creatively. But there is a report, I'll say, about this. From Mike Johnson, PW Insider Elite, earlier today as we are recording, there's been a lot of talk over the last 24 hours about the status of Malachi Black. Raj Geary of WrestlingInc.com is reporting Black asked for an AEW release, citing personal issues and his mental health, but it has not been granted. We can confirm that in speaking the close sources to Black, there has been a personal situation weighing heavily on him, and he's privately talked about taking a long, perhaps permanent, break from professional wrestling in order to deal with the issues. So there is some reporting from Mike Johnson. It goes on, but there's the crux of it. Well, 
Good for him. Let him take some time off from wrestling, deal with whatever his issues are, and everybody gets a break. And once again, maybe he could go away and people would miss him. And then he could come back and start it right this time. I don't, I don't know how you... This guy obviously thinks that the stuff that he's been doing is good or he wouldn't have continued to do it because nobody's made to do anything in this company, apparently. And it ain't because it was stupid and goofy and too fucking clowny and phony and supernatural and whatever, not in a cool way, but when a, in a goofy way, like what is going on way. So maybe he can go away and come back later on when somebody will use his size and any working ability he might have and figure out some way to translate that into something interesting that doesn't make everybody look stupid. And he could practice his aim on the mist if he's still doing the mist. Maybe he'll hit somebody one of these days. But I don't know what to say. But remember we said that... They they leaked that he had just signed a five-year contract. I said, how the fuck are they going to get another four and a half years if they even last that long entirely out of Malachi Black? Now he doesn't even know whether he wants to be a wrestler or not. Here's another idea. Anybody that's confused about whether they want to be a wrestler or not, give them their release and tell them when they make up their mind and they're sure they want to, then come back and we'll sign you again. But I don't want to sign people that ain't sure they want to be wrestlers. Mm. How long after that have release? You, you how long had- after that release does Alistair Black show up for Triple H's WWE? Well, maybe that's the personal problem. The guy that he didn't like is gone, and the guy <laughs> that he did like is back. But maybe they might know what to do with him. Did he stink as bad over there as he does over here? He wasn't used well but it was a different level of bad because it wasn't his bad. He needs someone. I know Heyman was a big proponent of his. We've always heard. He needs a Heyman. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> I guess that's just it. He needs someone. Yeah, like Heyman, that. Heyman could have easily gotten him over because he would have concentrated on the shit that the guy could do. That was good. Whether he knows what it is or not, Heyman would have and had him do it. We need a Heyman. We're holding out for a Heyman in the end of the night. Has anybody ever held out for a Heyman at the end of the night? I don't know. Maybe it's Studio 54, 1985. Oh, my God. Only the, only the guys waiting to get paid held out hey, for a Heyman at the end of the that. night. That's an awful and accusation. There's, there's more people disappear. Bobby Fish is apparently done. His contract has expired. It will not be renewed. It doesn't sound like that either side is particularly displeased by that. Uh, can you blame Bobby Fish? <laughs> they, I don't know. Well, Adam Cole got hurt, then came back and did an angle to break up with his previous cheesy friends from Cucamonga, and then goes away again because he's still hurt. And Kyle O'Reilly now has not wrestled in weeks and weeks and has been out injured. And now is somebody saying he might have to have neck surgery? Is that a rumor? Well, no, he apparently, uh, again, the wrestling news reporting on things as we are going here. Kyle O'Reilly did have surgery. He posted a photo to Instagram 
And the rumor is that right now it's neck fusion. We're trying to get confirmation. Oh. oh. Well, so they signed the Undisputed Era. They brought them in. They beat them all like drums. They apparently whipped all the goddamn enjoyment of life out of Adam Cole to the point where he doesn't care whether he lives, dies, or eats anymore. He now looks like a goddamn science experiment on how long the human body can go without sustenance. And now Fish is leaving. O'Reilly may be fucked up who knows how long or permanently. Adam Cole's on the missing list, but at least they got the angle in where they turned on their friends. Yes, the angle, again, the story from their side, they didn't rush past the FTR match. That was never the intention. It was all about going this way for the six-man thing, which included the big angle where the heels turned on the other heels. (laughs) And then immediately the heels that we hadn't seen on TV for a while, the main one's out. The other one's never coming back, and the other one had neck fusion surgery. Why did they do this angle? They never followed up on it. By the way- Because everybody was injured when they did it. Real quick, they don't follow up on anything that happens on that show. What happened to the luchador? What was it? Dragon Lee? Or was that his name? Yes. He got his mask pulled off at the end of the show. We never heard another Turned on by his teammates and unmasked, denuded in front of the world. With his little tallywhacker hanging off of his nose, flapping in the breeze for everybody to see. Out of nowhere, the Undisputed Era are on the show. They turn on the Young Bucks. Again, everyone's a heel. They turn on the Young Bucks. The fans actually pop for it. Except for one kid they found crying. He's probably related to the Young Bucks. And then it's the last we ever see of them <laughs> ever again. There's no match. There's nothing. How does that happen? Uh, because the alternative would have been that the Hardly Boys would have had to had that rubber match with FTR and put them over. And it would have been important and made money for the company and illustrated who the real best tag team in the world was. So, of course, they could have none of that. They will, however, go out and make sure that all of their Friends in the journalism world spread the story that, oh, absolutely, that had nothing to do with it. No, that's completely untrue, which is why that you can take it to the bank that it's true, because they've been having so many of their friends try to fucking say that it's not. So let's go to this program from last Wednesday. Can I ask you a question? I wish you would. Who knows what he wants to do? Bobby Fish. But do you think he's someone that Triple H should bring back for a role? Now, obviously, he's not a main eventer at this stage. I mean, he's in his 40s. But do you think that if he's left AEW, but he's not done with wrestling, is that someone that Triple H should find a role for? I think he should, because here's the thing. At this point, Fish was an important part of that group. Fish is not going to be a star on his own. You mentioned his age. He's an excellent worker he's a trained athlete he's a grown mature adult human being and he could be an asset in a wrestling promotion either with his experience as a trainer or as a a talent on the card because there's obviously not that many experienced talented workers around these days um i don't think anybody's saying you got to push him as a top single 
But yeah, I would think that he would have been a guy that, you know, was a, a, I haven't heard anything about him being a, a problem in the locker room or not a quality employee or human being. So if you're, especially if you've got a, a program where you're training young guys, you'd want a guy with that experience and that level of competence to be involved, if nothing else, and to teach other people and reward him for that. But again, while they had a group that was together and was over, they get three-fourths of the, of the group and literally drop the ball on every single one of them to the point where even before they injured themselves in this environment where they were so fucking so injured himself so badly that they're not even able to get in the ring now. And apparently Roddy's but, hurt too. Well, Roddy's hurt over the other side, but, but they have, they dropped the, before they got hurt, they dropped the ball on the whole thing. The undisputed era was rendered meaningless and negligible by the fact that they couldn't whip anybody when they came in. Remember it was, it was Cole. It was Adam Cole that the mascot beat with a, a, a hug. Lethal's the only one that escaped that fucking fate of getting beat by the mascot. So, anyway, they had the Undisputed Era, and now they're undisputedly over. As in done with, not popular. And we shall see where Bobby, Fli- where Bobby Fish swims off to. Bobby Flish? <laughs> Fish gotta swim, birds gotta fly. And... Boy, I wish I'd have flown past this program. No, actually, again, with AEW, unlike the WWE, with the WWE, you know, it's going to be boring, but there's going to be almost nothing ridiculous and probably nothing unprofessional. A lot of phony shit, but it'll be shot well. With AEW, you're going to get goddamn cable access at, you know, random times. And occasionally, either once or maybe twice, as in this program, there will be two segments that actually do some business and create a positive response, and everything else is bleh. And I've got to be honest starting this program. I don't want anybody to feel like that I'm being a hypocrite or that I've lost my mind, but I'm going to praise Plumber Moxley. I don't know whether he knows what he did or not. Maybe it was accidental. But he did a good fucking promo. A money promo, I'll even say. I had a a slight issue in the middle. But... (sighs) He comes to the ring, obviously, with what happened last week between him and Punk. People are now like, where is this going? What's happening here? We were all feeling that way. So Mox starts the promo, and they're in Chicago. And I guess they've got Chicago booked. They had Chicago booked Wednesday night. They also did Rampage there. Now they're coming back on Sunday, same building, going to do a pay-per-view, whatever. But... As soon as he started talking, I was like, okay, they're trying to fix this. He's turning heel. He's burying Punk in Chicago. He's doing a heel promo. This is actually the first coherent, meaningful money promo that this fucking guy I've ever heard him do since I've been watching him. 
And even a punk folded up and curled up in a ball to die. He just, uh, John Plummer Moxley here was an unsavory, obnoxious, antagonistic fucking asshole in front of these Chicago fans. He got them chanting for punk. And I thought it was almost a little too, I don't know, inside. But when he said the line, he didn't turn out to be what any of us wanted him to be. I understand he's trying to appeal to the fucking brainwashed AEW fans that think that punk is actually the fucking outlier here and that the rest of the roster is what wrestling's supposed to be. But I think calling punk fragile and weak, maybe a little strong for the top guy in the company to be called fragile and weak, but with what they were doing later on, I'm going to let this go. And Moxley produces the open contract for a pay-per-view opponent and leaves it in the ring. Whoever signs that contract, the plumber says, I can out everything. I can out fight you. I can out fucking fuck you. I can out run you a foot race, whatever. Then he, I thought this is brilliant in Chicago, especially they're lucky enough to be there. He has turned heel to give this match some kind of fucking meaning to give Punk something to come back and conquer. But then he did a babyface close where he started putting himself over and the people started cheering him again because he wasn't doing it in a heelish way. So there he had great delivery, but it wasn't good material because he's backing up on what he's just accomplished. So then I wrote, is he switching heel? Or is he not smart enough to know that the first two-thirds of this promo was him switching heel? <laughs> so we still have questions. And after he's left the ring and the announcers are talking, here comes a steel down to the ring and picks up the contract and walks out with it. And obviously, the majority of people have no idea who the fuck a steel is. In Chicago, it might have been a little... A little better because he's from there, but still there's a lot of people in the building, and Ace Steel has not been featured on television, but Jim Ross, with one line, was able to throw in conversationally, well, he's awful good friends with Punk. And there you go. So now we know what, and he also, they identified him as one of the backstage producers for whatever the backstage producers do in people's mind. So that is the first time it, that Moxley has ever been palatable to me in any way. And it was a great job of switching heel in front of the people that apparently now we know he's going to have the rematch with against Punk in Punk's hometown. The question is, does he think that he was switching heel just for Chicago, even though they were on television, he was switching heel for everybody, and he almost did a good job of it till the end. But are they going to then ignore this after the the punk match and just have this surly plumber continue to be a babyface after he said those things and told the people of Chicago to piss off? I think that's one of the big questions I had coming out of this was, What's the reaction going to be when they get out of Chicago? Is this all just for Chicago? Because they're going to be there for a while. We have to see, because we do know people like Moxley, 
I thought the promo, about midway through it, I thought it was the best promo he's done. Because of the energy, he's not in the back, just in front of a, you know, a sewer. He's you know in the front, yeah. he's in front of fans and some energy. But then at the end, he got to the, you know, I'm going to eat your blood and yeah, I'm going to drink. Blood and break your bones. Yeah, and bone broth out of your blood. Yeah, just whatever he says. It's so stupid. It's, <laughs> it's so stupid and it drags it down because he's believable otherwise. Otherwise, he's that guy you run into in the bar and you don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I, I ate his eyeball. Yeah. I'm going to kick your ass. Oh, no. I'm going to fuck you up. Oh, no. And then I'm going to take your blood and I'm going to drink it. And I'm going to wrap your colon around my arm. Like, just shut up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, I don't think anyone knew who Ace Steel was. Because I know who he is, but I don't think I've seen him on TV or noticed him before. But that was the good part about it. They a brief and they didn't belabor it. You know, I mean, the fact that you see him pick the contract up, you know, something's going on. But you didn't know exactly what. And they didn't belabor it till later on. So I, I could get past that. Speaking of getting past things, um, so Tony was in the back with Jericho, uh, Jericho versus Danielson Sunday, and Jesus. Anyway, Garcia comes in. You can't have a show without Daniel Garcia, and he does the deal where he recites the dialogue that he has memorized, apologizing to Jericho and offering his support with as much feeling as a comatose zombie who is not really happy to be there and it's it's memorized and stagey interplay about this silliness you know that nobody's gonna buy anyway and nobody cares even if you know the wrestling business is fake phony who cares about this childishness well i'm sorry i didn't i didn't respect you for whatever the fuck and then Jericho closes up with, just remember, Danielson, all's fair in wrestling and romance. Brian, now 99.5% of the people who heard that apparently thinks that Jericho and Brian Danielson are romantically linked because nobody but the most ardent basement dweller or the most ridiculously overprepared wrestling researcher such as you and I remembers that one of the outlaw groups in Japan in the oh, mid-90s come on. was called war, wrestling, and romance because of the weird things that Japanese people are into. They got romance in the title of the wrestling company. To be fair, that was the second name of the company. Originally, not that this is a better name, but it was Wrestling Association R. Yeah, and then then they put romance in, and so does anybody know that? Anybody at this point? Well, I mean, like you said, I don't want to completely dismiss it because I know it, and I had tapes of it back in the '90s, and there are some fans. It's our but fucking business. Other than that, no one knows it. However, what a time to mention it, considering they're having a bad trios division. When you think of bad six man <laughs> matches, you think of wrestling and romance war in the '90s. That was a thing with them, wasn't it? Ah, so anyway, then Danielson goes to the ring to wrestle Jake Hager. And honestly, as we know, Jake Hager is an awkward bum and has been ever since he fucking debuted. I, I'd never really seen him in the WWF, but I thought, okay, he was there and they used him for a while. So he's going to be okay. And no, he's rotten and he hadn't gotten any better. 
and he never will. <laughs> but I thought Danielson is so good, he can make Hager look decent, right? An awkward bum is what you call An awkward <laughs> bum. He's awkward and he's a bum. He's got that fucking moop face. The moops. That's who it was. The moops. He's got that moop face. And he stands there at his fucking fashion sense when he's in dress clothes. He looks like a CPA on a golf course. And his wrestling, he doesn't have the timing. He doesn't have the aggression. He doesn't have a higher gear. He's awkward. He's got the size. He's a legitimate shooter. We've seen him do nothing great in the way of professional wrestling. But I figured I'd hope for Danielson. But within two minutes, they're out on the floor and Hager had spinebustered Danielson through a table just as a spot and they are on the floor forever. And then whenever Hager takes over in a match and he's controlling somewhat the tempo, even if the other more experienced guy is calling it, shit slows down. You keep waiting for him to be impressive or good, and he never is. And it's there. And finally, Danielson made a comeback. The people are with him like fucking crazy. Brian Danielson may be... Punk is more over, I think, over. Danielson, I think, is more beloved and popular with those people. So the people are with him on the comeback and he kept going for an arm bar, label lock or whatever the fuck. And they did a little back and forth. And finally Danielson hits the knee. Boom. One, two, three, right finish, right result. But then here come the heels in. They've got to get heat quotation marks. I say heat again, as every time every match is over, there's got to be an afterbirth. So now the heels jump on him. Why? And then here comes Claudio and Utah to make the same. At this point, why don't they just come down to begin with? Because everybody knows they're coming. I mean, this is the most ridiculous run-in company I've ever seen, and I've seen companies bad on run-ins. In the territory days, the uh, guys used to tell me, you know how you can tell when the company's doing too many run-ins? When there's a fucking big post-match angle going on in the ring and the bell's ringing and shit's flying and people are getting shit kicked out of them, the fans aren't watching the ring. The fans have turned their head to the locker room entrance to, to see who's coming out. That means you've done too many run-ins. I can imagine that these people have their heads toward the back. So... Claudio and Wheeler Useless jump in on the other Jericho appreciators and they fight off. They actually fight to the back, through the back entranceway. They fight completely out of the arena so Jericho can come to the ring with a chair and draw back and he's going to smite Danielson, but Garcia comes from behind Jericho and grabs the chair away from him. Now, Garcia's just apologized earlier for interfering with Jericho and doubting him and blah, blah, blah. Now he's back to doing that. And then Danielson hits Jericho with the knee while he's disrupted by Garcia. Your thoughts on this contest? It was all right when Danielson was doing stuff with the crowd behind him, but Hager is just death on TV. No one wants to see him. Even if he's against Danielson, in my case. 
And then you said it, the run-ins. Let's just go to the bigger issue, this feud. The Jericho Appreciation Society feuding with the Blackpool Combat Club, or at least certain members of the Combat Club. I don't know where Steve Regal is. He's supposed to be the manager. He's never there. Well, that's because he's on color. Because they they have to have him on color um, to make a four-man announce booth because they don't have enough announcers. I'm not saying Regal shouldn't do color, but drop somebody out of the... Anyway. They got to get Danielson away from all this. He was on a trajectory. They took him completely off it. Just put him on another trajectory, end this Jericho thing, let him beat Jericho at the pay-per-view, and then everyone move on. Him and Daniel Garcia could hug. Maybe he could adopt him, bring him into his home, and we could all move on. Speaking of moving on, we moved on on this television program. The wingmen were in the ring. The wingmen are composed of Ryan Nemeth, who's Dolph Ziggler's younger brother, and I like him. He's got some oomph to him. He's an entertaining fellow. We never see him on television in this company. He's always on YouTube, along with his cohorts, Peter Avalon, who's potentially one of the most embarrassing things I've ever seen in a ring and should be immediately shot on sight by any Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, well-meaning people. If you see this guy out in public, just shoot him on sight. Uh, Cesar Romero. Hypothetically or or, uh, figuratively, you mean? No, well, okay, just take a baseball bat and bash his head in. Turn his brains into jelly. He's a menace to society. Jesus Christ. Uh, Cesar Romero is back. Old Cesar and J.D. Drake, they are the wingmen, apparently. And they were in the ring picketing with posters because they deserved more TV time. And they'd been in the ring 45 seconds when music plays, and here comes W. Morrissey. Why is his first name W? Uh, So they don't get sued by the singer Morrissey from the Smiths. What was his first name? Well, he didn't reveal that. He just called himself Morrissey. Well, then why can't this guy be like Bill Morrissey or George Morrissey or Jim Morrissey or Eddie Morrissey? Why does he have to be W. Morrissey? What is that all about? He looks like a seven-foot Greg Allman. Couldn't he be fucking Allman Morrissey? What would the gimmick be, that he's the illegitimate child of Greg Allman? He's the illegitimate child of, of Greg Allman and Cher, but we think that she fucked Wilt Chamberlain the same week. <laughs> The sperm got mixed. It doesn't even make any sense. Yes, then why it would does. he be blonde? Then why would he be blonde? Because Greg's jizz was in there. It was a mixture of the jizz. I don't know why I'm engaging took, you in this. She took, she took a bath in a jizz jacuzzi. A jizz koozie. And she got the illegitimate son of Greg Allman and Wilt Chamberlain. Okay, so let me ask you this. Who's explaining this on commentary? Is this Excalibur or Jim Ross? I'll do it. Really? I'll do it. <laughs> Sign up for that. Okay. If they'll give him that gimmick, I'll I'll take a job there just to be able to explain it. The Jizz Koozie. So this fucking guy, and remember, he was on the show once before. And he's rotten. He's rotten. And all he is is another guy that's gonna make other giant guys look small because that's what he's got. He's big. And he comes at walks to the ring and 
the heels just one at a time or two at a time in one's case, because that's what the spot called for, just run at him, leaving themselves open for the big bump that he's going to give them. They walk right into the shit. Uh, that Peter Avalon was especially phony and silly and fucking fake. And his, he's another guy that I would have fucking grabbed by the collar or the hair of the head to see the pants or something and physically thrown him out of a building I was in charge of for putting on an exhibition like that in a wrestling ring. Piece of shit. Uh, there was no life or reason to any of this. They just, they took their requisite bumps from this fucking guy and Stokely then comes in and he's handing out this card. There are escort services in major American cities that have more private phone numbers than old Stokely Carmichael here. Hathaway. Hathaway. Well, you you Hathaway or I'll Hathaway, one or the other. And again, then Tony is there and Tony asks old Stokely about the cards and Stokely turns away like it's Nunya. And Tony says, no, wait a minute. This is our job. We're supposed to find out about these things. And Stokely, all five foot four of him, who has been <laughs> so far a reserved kind of fella, because Tony says, no, no, tell me what the cards are about. He snatches Tony up by the lapels. And then obviously, and Tony says, you jack off. <laughs> and JR says, that's a fine. They've just had the fucking <laughs> language meeting. So Tony calls the manager a jack-off because the manager, for no reason whatsoever, snatches the announcer up by the suit jacket. And then Tony is scared of the seven-foot Greg Allman standing there, so he backs off and, and the heels leave. Uh, again, why is W. Morrissey, first of all, why is his name W.? Secondly, why was he there and we didn't hear anything about it until his music plays and he wanders out to accost four job guys that we've never seen on TV before because they're always on YouTube? And then they have a stagey situation where they take contrived bumps for this guy, obviously cooperating with it. One of them acts especially comedic to try to draw attention to himself because apparently his fucking cousin Nancy was watching back home on TV. And then the manager gets violent with the announcer when he tries to find out who this new star is. What the fuck? You got a seven-foot guy. Okay. We're going to fucking billboard him. We're going to talk about him. He's coming. He's going to be a force when he gets here. We're going to hear him talk. We're going to see footage of him in action in other places, laying waste to people. Finally, next week, he's going to be here live. Holy shit, what's going to happen? No, let's just play some generic music, bring the fucking guy out. Well, that's W. Morrissey, who's been here once, ever. Fucking shit. You jack off. Poor Tony. I bet he had to pay that fine, too. Poor Tony. What's he doing out there? So what do you think of William Morris and his agency? He wishes, first of all. <laughs> That's who he was related to. You know, when the wingman first came out, I was like, okay, who's coming out? Is it Wardlow? Is it FTR? Is it whoever it is? Who's coming out to get a little bit of time chasing off guys we never see on TV? My second thought was, oh, man, Peter Avalon still works there? 
I thought he got released. And then W. Morrissey comes out. Now I have to call him this. You know, I was kind of ready to shit on it until the Stokely Hathaway entrance. And hear me out for a second. We have no idea where this thing's going. He has approached successfully so far, I think. Ethan Page. The Gun Brothers, if that's what we call them. W. Morrissey. I'm forgetting someone. Who's the other one? Lee. Is it Lee Johnson or Lee Moriarty? I don't know. I don't even remember. But there's a Lee. He's got a Lee. <laughs> we don't know where this is going. And I agree it was ridiculous that all of a sudden he got physical with Shivani, that Shivani just no-sold it completely. <laughs> but we did say that we'd like to see this guy be a little bit more serious. Now, if AEW did something more serious in the right direction, it would be a shock. You think they meant, they thought that was serious? I do think that? I think so. I think there has been a little bit of a change in the tone in how he's been presented. It's been mild, but we haven't really seen him telling jokes with Jade for a little bit. <clears throat> and now he's doing this. Oh, we forgot about old Jane. Jane's in there too in the group. No, I don't think she's part of the. She doesn't. Well, have a, you she don't you never see her in the group, but she's affiliated with Stokely, and she's now and he's giving his card out everywhere. He's just playing every set. The whole point is, if you're going to have a manager, look here. God damn it! Yes, he's been on television because he was in NXT, but it's not like being a manager in NXT meant you were managing. Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar and the biggest stars in the fucking world. He he didn't have the pedigree of Paul Heyman. So, when you've got a manager that is not over to the level of Paul Heyman in the WWE right now, or Bobby Heenan was in his day, or in the AWA, or I wasn't in, or whatever the case, when you have a manager that's not noted for managing top talent or being affiliated with the champions or the very upper echelon guys, you have to give him one of those guys when you first introduce him or elsewise, the manager does not get over because an unknown manager can't get over with underneath or middle card talent. Then you've pigeonholed the manager in the middle. If a Unknown manager comes in and is immediately paired with a main event talent. That tells the fans that that manager is somebody important and somebody to be fucking taken into account. And then you book things along in that direction. You can get an unknown wrestler over with a main event manager, a la Bobby Heenan bringing in anybody. And they're over because they're a member of the Heenan family. But you can't do it in reverse because that does not translate. So, you know, and then they've split this again. I understand if you didn't want the package to just be Stokely and Jane Cargill because Jane's not out there every fucking week and they've still not. I mean, you can't expect Miracle. She's not going to have 20 minute matches. She's still green. But when they send him out, okay, the guns and then fucking the other page where he's been floating and meaningless. And is he hurt? Cause he never wrestles anymore. And then he's coming out and giving this other guy a card. And now he brings out that, well, now it's just all over the fucking place and there's no focus. And do we, 
Are we expected to believe that W. Morrissey is a main event guy because he beat up four job guys that we've never seen before? Or are we expect to believe that W. Morrissey is a main event guy because the manager that gives his card to all the underneath talent has now given his card to W. Morrissey? And W. Morrissey... That is the worst name. You're right. Besides the fact that that is the worst name in history... <laughs> He's been working out. He used to look a little soft, as they say, fleshy. Now he's been working out. He's got a nice little physique there, and he and he's going to have a goddamn stroke flexing so hard because he's one of these guys that thinks if you flex and make a mean face and scream till your face turns red, that that will get into the camera, that that will get you over to the audience at home. So that's what he was doing. Every time he'd give somebody a bump, he'd turn and flex and turn red. And no, from I, we saw him longer the last time he had a match here, which was against who the fuck was it? It was was it Wardlow? It was somebody that Something. was beating people every week. Maybe Wardlow. Yeah, and he didn't look that good, as I recall, because I said I don't think he looks that good. So he's a guy that is deceptive. He's like a Mark Jendrak. He's just big enough and tall enough that he makes the real top talent that are big look smaller and makes the top talent that are smaller look even smaller than they already are. How do and you that's, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I predict his future will be very, very dim in AEW because he doesn't know how to take care of himself, and I don't know that anybody's going to be motivated to teach him. Go ahead, your thoughts. How do you approach someone like that for an autograph? Do you say, excuse me, W, uh, man, please <laughs> I don't know what you're supposed to say. That's Mr. Morrissey to you. Mr. Morrissey. That'd be better than W. Morrissey. Mr. Morrissey. Like well, I said, I'm just curious how they're using Stokely Hathaway because we know he could talk. He could be silly, but he could just be funny enough. He's now shown that he could be menacing to... 60-something-year-old announcers. I kind of want to see where they're going with that. And But again, you don't, you don't snatch your announcers unless it's an angle. Now they've established that anybody can just snatch the fucking announcer. It doesn't mean anything. They will not save anything for when it might mean something with somebody meaningful. Huh. It... it you should have been in a production meeting or something. If somebody suggested to Vince McMahon, well, let's snatch Michael Cole or let's snatch Jim Ross. And then later yeah, on, they ended things, up. Yeah, things changed after you left. Yeah, him. things changed. <laughs> and they ended up snatching Michael Cole and Jim Ross and putting them in the ring. And it was some of the most horrid programming in history. But when <laughs> Vince's still was in control of his faculties, no. You'd say, well, that'll happen as a lead-up to WrestleMania. Wasn't Michael All Cole right. sexually assaulted by, what was his name, Heidenreich? Oh, Big Bad John. Yes, I think he did take him in the shower for a Johnny Valentine treatment. And they filmed like this, <laughs> whatever, it was like an episode of Oz all of a sudden on <laughs> WWE. <laughs> Big Bad John. John Heidenreich was a hell of a guy. They could have got some fucking money out of him, too, or made some money off of him, but anyway. Yeah. The answer to who is the worst road warrior? Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
coming up next, guess who was back? A name that we have not seen in so long, and people were just clamoring to find out when he was going to come back. Officer Bar Brady was back doing... <laughs> you think Tony Schiavone said, hey, I'm doing everything at the desk, plus all these pre-taped backstage promos where people think I have to run back and forth to the back every five minutes and I must be a goddamn teleporter. Uh, let Barb Brady do one of them. So he's back, and he was with Will Ostrich. And immediately Don Callis came in with the smarmy heel compliments, backhanded, of course, and tonight's going to be so exciting. And boy, little did Callis know that he was speaking for all of us when he said, tonight will be so exciting. Did you watch Hikaru Shida and Tony Storm against Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker? I watched a good amount of it, yeah. <laughs> well, at first I say, you know, I'm running short on time. Want to make sure I'm not late doing the broadcast, but then it had been transpiring for a minute or so. Did you see Shida give Hayter the leaping Hurricane Rana? I actually missed that. I must have walked away at that moment. Okay. Sheeta hits the ropes. There's Hater in the middle of the ring. Sheeta leaps, running back toward Hater, leaps up, legs around her head, gives her the running Hurricane Rana, and God damn it, just propelled poor Jamie Hater straight to the mat, face first, like a goddamn, she'd been shot out of a cannon. And knocked the poor girl goofy. You could tell. The referee immediately went down to check on her. And Sheeta jumps up and fires up the people. She's completely oblivious that she nearly bashed this girl's face in. She thinks she took the bump normally and everything was fine, right? When, even though all the people went, oh, like that. So then she tags Storm in. And Storm comes in and takes over on the poor girl who apparently was still conscious, and they went on. At that point, I'd seen enough. And what happened? Anything else interesting? The only other interesting thing I'll say, and the women's division has been a mess for a while, but they really react to Britt Baker because she's got a personality that goes past the division. Right. Hater, I've said it before, Hater may be the best in-ring female, other than like a Serena Deeb, Hater may be the best in-ring in the entire company. The fans didn't react to Sheeta, which is, which is kind of telling, I think. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people see these women's segments as a chance to go into the kitchen, check on the kids, whatever it may be. and uh, Have a root canal. It's not fair. Give, give yourself a high colonic. It's not fair, but you know if you've given women's wrestling a chance in AEW, the way it's booked on TV and just... It's like the men's division in a sense, like someone gets over, someone's being used, the fans are reacting, then you don't see them for a little while. So I, it was all right for what it was. Ruby Soho was going to save that division, wasn't she? Look at how she was booked. Where, where is she at? Where has she been? Is she still there? She's still there. She's, she was teaming up, uh, I guess it was the Friday show, couldn't be the pay-per-view, it was her and Ortiz against... Sammy and Ty Conti. 
because obviously what, what was the ratings on last friday's rampage episode oh, hold on am i doing two things and you got me looking up fucking ratings? well hold now on. you'll do three things rampage tv ratings yeah I because remember the- earlier in this program we established that at various points in the history of wrestling in Memphis, Tennessee, the television program aired over the air on broadcast television by Channel 5 in and around the Memphis area within 100 miles of Memphis was doing 300,000 viewers each week just on that one station in and around Memphis, Tennessee. What is the amount of people viewing the Friday night AEW program on national cable on TBS in the entire fucking country. The most recent rating, which is a week ago today as we are recording, for August 26, 2022, 431,000 viewers. Well, there you go. They got an extra 130,000 over what Memphis TV used to... Oh, I forgot. Memphis would then also be broadcast in Louisville, Kentucky. And also in Lexington, Nashville, and Evansville, Indiana. So that's immediately much more than 130,000 people. So a television program that aired on five local stations had more viewers than theirs in the entire fucking United States of America. That's interesting. Let's continue on. They're actually doing a package now and promoting the angle where young Pip Sabian, the Charles Dickens-like urchin who has been wearing a box on his head and sitting at ringside for the past year, tormenting Pac, apparently on Tony Khan's dime. This is the wrestling assignment that this guy's had for a year or so, is sit in the crowd and wear a box on his head. He has excelled at it much better than anything he ever did in the ring. So he was doing the voiceover this. Did he speak as prissily before uh, when he was young Pip Sabian with the virgin Penelope Swale and, uh, you know, the, the, the whole Miro thing when they were doing the video game gimmick? Did he speak like that? Or is he now he because apparently in the last year, Old young Pip has uh, spent the night in a haunted house because it turned his hair gray. Remember, he used to be a little shriveled up version of Johnny Sameface, but now he's got gray hair. I think he's encountered a horrible fright. I don't think there's any comparison to Johnny Gargano. He's a lot taller than Johnny Gargano, I think, but, you know... Wait a minute. Little Pip is taller than Gargano? I'll bet you he's taller than Gargano. Absolutely. Little Pip. I think we joke. Little Pip squeak. I we joke about guys who are like Disney Channel villains, Nickelodeon villains. That's what this, this was, was. One of me. Yeah. Pip Sabian should be out after some Dalmatians. <laughs> That's right. All right. So, and then of course the the counterpoint. His old, uh, his old friend Miro was doing a promo in his dark room, where they've got him in. They never pay the light bill. They're on television, but everybody wants to be shot in the dark. Uh, and then Darby Allen walked in there with him. Darby is still speaking like he's cruising on Lake Havasoma. No emotion, no oomph in it. Just, just uh, yeah, man. You know, I guess I don't know whether it's that's the way he memorizes it or that 
one of these stunts that he does has given him brain damage and he has no inflection left in his voice. And then here came Sting in. Somebody pay the electric bill. They're all in the dark. And when Sting walked in, then he obliterated the sight of Miro because they they only had the little bitty spots, you know, spotlights fucking pointed. So he shaded Miro. They're doing something. I don't know what. Any closing thoughts on any of those segments before we get to the second good segment on and last good segment on this program? You know, I wondered what they were going to do with Miro on the pay-per-view. I wondered what they were going to do with Darby. I don't know why I didn't just go with the obvious. Another fucking six-man match. But <laughs> we'll see what happens at the pay-per-view. And then, Lock Mussolini saving the booking, giving it the best try he can. Here comes Punk. And he enters subdued, his hands in his pockets. If you notice, he is always out with the appropriate emotion. If he's happy to be there or should be happy to be there, then he's happy. If he's wrestling, then he's got his game face on, but he's confident. If something like this has happened, he comes out, you can almost see the tears in his eyes. And that's something that used to be standard in wrestling and is no longer even thought about which is why bianca belair you can burn her house down the next day she's going to come out on tv skipping and smiling twirling her hair so he did the promo and he started talking about the damage to his foot three plates 16 screws i have a feeling that he didn't make that up so apparently this was worse than we thought it might be and one smartass started to chant Cold Cabana. Actually, that's usually the Cold Cabana chants usually consist of one smartass, but... Could you hear as, it at home on TV? You heard it? Actually, I had to go back and replay it because as soon as Punk pointed at the guy and, and said what he said, which I'm about to mention, that's, I said, what was that? And then you can... You can hear if you're listening for it, because it was it bled over somebody's microphone. Right. It was a very faint cold cold. But Punk heard it because the guy was in the front row. He had just talked about his three plates and sixteen screws. The guy goes cold cabana, and Punk immediately says, "Which, by the way, is sixteen times more than this fat guy's got screwed in his life, and gets a big pop from the people." And then he explained he probably came back too early. And he just got beat up in Cleveland, and he doesn't know if his new 100% is good enough. But he came back to wrestling because he loves the business and the fans, and it hurts to feel like I let you down. This is great stuff. This is the baby face. This is the hero actually being conflicted on whether he should return or not and whether he'll be good enough, but not like really, like some fucking. Mental incompetence. Oh, my God. No, this is out in front of the people so they'll know that he supposedly feels this way so it will play into the story. God damn it. I can't believe I have to say these things at this point. And then he breaks down. Maybe he's not good enough anymore. This is classic shit. If he really felt that way and wanted to fucking quit, then I'd say he's goddamn nuts. 
But for the story, it's brilliant. And then here comes a steal out. And he again identifies himself in a conversational way. And they refer to what happened earlier just briefly. And he gives Punk the pep talk. The Rocky and Mickey speech. The corner man. This is classic psychology. He is Punk's old mentor, his old trainer. And legitimately, Ace came first. He was already established in the in the Chicago area in the 90s. And he gets him fired up, and then he slaps him. And he says, you fucking get up. He got carried away, and he fucking said fucking after they'd had the meeting. And this was reported. On the internet, immediately when he went through the curtain, he held his hand up and said, it's my fault, I slipped, he fined himself, I think, or paid whatever fine Tony Khan wanted him to fucking pay. But it worked here. He was firing punk up. You're better than this, you can do it, get up. It's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get up, you fucking get up. Sign this contract, and the fans were screaming. And he says, have you forgot who you were? And the fans chant CM Punk, CM Punk. And now Punk cuts the fired up promo. He's been convinced. He's seen the light. He starts firing him up. He goes into the crowd. He goes out in the audience. He rouses Chi-Town behind him. He runs for the mayor of Chicago. You can't break my bones or drink my blood, Moxley, because we are Chicago. And he signs the contract in the middle of the people. Brian, did you see? They literally did throw a baby in the air. Well, they raised him up, at least. They, they didn't raised let go him of him. Yeah. But they raised him up. They offered up a baby to the god of CM Punk in Chicago. Don't throw your babies, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Don't throw the baby or kick the baby. But no, and, and everybody tweeted that picture of the guy holding the baby up. The babies are in the air in Chicago. This was fucking perfect. I didn't see it coming. And I realize now how much sense it makes. If they'd have had this match, two baby faces... One, a phony champion, interim champion, the other, the real champion. Moxley had not been on a reign of terror. Moxley had not taken advantage of anybody in Punk's absence or done anything that needed to be gotten even with. They had to do something or it was just going to be a blase fucking babyface match for fucking marks of goddamn wrestling moves. And there's a lot fewer of those than ever before. They needed to have some emotion in this. There needed to be a heel and a baby face. And now, at least in Chicago, there's going to be a heel and a baby face because Moxley is shit on the town at the same time as Punk just ran for mayor and was offered up babies as sacrifices. So now we got something. Now there's going to be a fucking atmosphere. Now maybe people might buy the pay-per-view to see what's going to happen. Do you think Moxley will threaten to either eat the baby or drink the baby's blood? 
I think the I know I think he's gonna grind the baby's bones to make his bread. Um This is the first time I've ever heard Ace Steel do a promo to the best of my knowledge, and he was fantastic. He well, nailed the tone that it had to be and the look on Punk's face after he got the slap. You mentioned how Punk comes out there, he always has the right look on his face. I remember someone years ago saying, David Bowie's amazing. He's always in the perfect pitch. And CM Punk comes out there, his face tells the story, but you don't know what the yeah. whole story is. And then it all unfolds. So, uh, again, this, this segment and the previous segment, the, the first one with Moxley, this sold this cold-ass fucking blasé match. And since all of a sudden, the entire direction, complexion, and inflection of this thing changed as soon as Punk showed back up, I have a feeling we know that this was not a Booker of the Year fucking uh, inspiration. Anyway, moving quickly through the rest of the program, because it's all downhill from here, folks, the sit-down with Jim Ross with Jungle Boy and Christian Cage. They keep trying to remake the magic of the Mick Foley Mankind sit-down with Jim Ross, and, and JR can't do it alone. Dramatic music behind it. Christian Cage is well-spoken. He's convincing. Jungle Boy's voice sounds like a whiny teenager with no emotion. He's trying to act. And even when he talks about his dad who's passed away, he can't muster up some goddamn balls in his voice. My father taught me to be a man, and that is a lesson I'm going to teach to you with no contractions. You know who you can't trust, Brian? Who's that? You can't trust a motherfucker that doesn't use contractions when they speak. I will say that again a different way. You cannot trust a motherfucker who does not use contractions when they speak. See? You can't trust that. But you can trust a motherfucker that uses some contractions when they're fucking talking because it's natural. So this guy's either an English professor in his spare time or elsewise he's reciting memorized lines. So does anybody care to see Jungle Boy against Christian Cage at this point? I think less people care than they did a few weeks ago. Now, with yeah. that said, people will react to it because it's at the big event in Chicago. Those fans will be all amped up for it. But he should have never been on the mic. He should have never been doing promos because from day one, the first time we heard him talk, he's been bad. And it's gotten worse, not better. This segment did nothing to make anyone want to see this match. He's horrible on the mic. And... You would almost think he would need a gimmick that would be perfect to not have to talk in a mic like he's a jungle boy with no idea how to speak. But even if you didn't want to use that and you wanted to make it real, just don't let he him need, talk. He needs a manager named Baloo. <laughs> um, then we have an entrance for a six-man tag team match. FTR gets their entrance, then Wardlow gets the long walk the two most over individual or over entities, one tag team and one single that from about six or eight weeks ago in this company have now been reduced to meaningless six man tags against jobbers. When there's actually other six man tags on the program for a, a an alleged six man tag team championship. So now they have to put these guys in the same kind of matches as them and make sure that these guys have dweebs to work with and no time to do it. 
so that they so FTR and Wardlow beat three job guys in a minute for no reason. There's no reason they should be a six man tag team. There's no reason they should be interacting. And then right after that, Moxley walks out to the ring and kicks Justin Roberts out of the ring and accepts the signed contract that Punk already signed. And it, this was the law of diminishing returns with Moxley. He comes out and basically he could have said, if that's what your boy wants, then that's what he'll get, Chicago. I'll be here. But instead, this is where he tried to go on about the drinking of the blood and the cracking of the bones and the law of diminishing returns kicks in. There's no way he's going to be lucky enough to do this right twice in a row, especially on the same program. And he fucking finally gets to a point where he stops for a second. Did you see they hit his music and he starts trying to talk again and realize his music is playing and gets mad and throws the $2,500 wireless microphone out of the fucking ring like a goddamn baseball but at least it was short because they cut him off and he accepted but you can't get two good ones out of moxley in the same show speaking of not good interviews pizzeria uno in the back with tony shivani and another one of the masked dork order jobbers andre oleolio comes in and tries to buy the masked guy and Again, what the fuck are they doing? Is Andre going to be out of there soon? It's every Andrade segment is just bizarre. He's in the stairwell making deals that no one cares about, what wrestlers no one cares about. He's in the locker room. No one cares. Stacy had come in the TV room at this point, and she has never seen Pizzeria Uno, to my knowledge, or to her knowledge. She said, who the fuck is that guy? She said, look, is he's both fat and pale and dressed in pleather with that shark mask. What is the fucking deal? I said, he's one of the dork order. He's the leader of the dork order. And we get another example here that his voice sounds like a 13-year-old girl. And he's trying to bow up to Andre, who at least looks like a goddamn athlete. And Andre grabs the other jobber's crutch and beats up Uno with his own partner's crutch. While Jose, the assistant, threatens the masked job dork order guy that's got the bad knee with a stun gun. He didn't hit it with him, but he just zapped it toward him, and the guy just sat there and let the other guy beat up his fucking partner with a crutch. What was happening here? <laughs> Again. I believe the last time we saw Andrade, it was him and Roosh ripping the mask off another wrestler. We never heard of that wrestler again. We never found out what happened with that. And that was Why has the assistant got a stun gun? Who did he want to buy previously? He wanted to buy Darby, right? Wasn't he trying he to, buy to buy Darby, Darby from, Sting? from Sting? Yeah. They never even had a match, did they? I don't know. If they did, it doesn't register, which tells the story. Even if they did, it doesn't register. So coming out of that promo, Rush and Felix teamed up against Dante Martin and Wheeler Useless. And gymnastics class was in session. And I was starting to hit the fast forward. But 
Stacy's reactions. I wrote down some of them. What the fuck? They're going to kill somebody. Who the fuck said I'll take that? Why the fuck would you do that? What the fuck are they doing? <laughs> I know Stace has never been a an in-ring worker that you would say, okay, you know, she's in comparison with Mildred Burke and June Byers, right? But she spent quite a bit of time in the premier developmental program in the wrestling business. And that means she's seen trained people. She's seen people trained. She's seen trained talent exhibit their training. And she's got a pretty discerning eye for stupid shit. You should have seen her reaction. Another one of these goofy dipshits gave somebody the reverse Hurricane Rana. What do they call it? The Poison Rana. Where they go backward and land on. I think it was Felix took it, landing on it. She said, who the fuck said, oh, I'll take that. It's, you know, when, it, this is kind of what it would be like if you had somebody that was in the wrestling business 20 years ago and then they just were in a medically induced coma for 20 years and quit watching it because she has paid very little attention. And then now she tries to pick it up and it's like, this is not even, this is not the same endeavor, the same line of work. These people have all lost their fucking minds. It would be the same with anybody else if you broke somebody out of an iceberg that had been in the wrestling business 20 years ago and hadn't seen shit. So this match was a goddamn clusterfuck of epic proportions, and it then it was over. Did I miss anything? Not for your sensibilities, no, no, no. Okay. Then they had more of the dork order jobbers in the back. This was little Brutus and the other guy that doesn't wear a mask. And they're crying about Friday in the six-man tag tournament. Their partner apparently was the mask job guy that was on crutches and his knees bad. And now apparently Pizzeria Uno is injured as well because he got the shit beat out of him with a crutch. <laughs> and that the partner furnished and then didn't help save him and they're upset they don't have a partner they're gonna have to fight the other fucking idiots by themselves two against three or whatever and here comes adam page in and offers to be their partner and not only did they accept and then they went to the graphic and actually stacy again pointed this out this was where she got up off the couch and walked out of the room she couldn't take anymore Paige walks in out of nowhere, offers to be their partner because they need one. They say, okay. The announcer says, we'll be right back. They go to a graphic that's already prepared <laughs> on this live television program of the match on Friday with Paige as partner. But even funnier than that, old hangnail Adam Page came out and did a live interview, which he's not real good at anyway under the best of circumstances, and ran his fucking dick liquor about CM Punk and ends up, as a result of that, two weeks later, teaming up with job guys on the lowest-rated wrestling program on television. Maybe he should have kept his fucking mouth shut and, as Mama Cornette used to say, 
sat his little white ass in the corner and kept his mouth shut and his ears open and learned something. Instead of going out and causing himself to be known a fucking idiot by refusing to keep his mouth shut. Becoming known as unprofessional, which is even worse, but he's going to get what he wants out of this, right? They're going to have the dark order against Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks in the finals at the pay-per-view. And here's another thing. So we get more of the fun drama between Paige and the friends who don't like him drinking and the other friend who drove him (laughs) to drink and whatever the fuck this is. We are expected to believe that the Hardly Boys and Twinkle Toes McFinger Bang against the Dork Order and Hangnail Paige on pay-per-view would be a better match, bigger money-drawn proposition than FTR Bucks 3 for all the belts. That's what they're having. Well, I got news for you. When you tell me bullshit, you asshole little whiny motherfuckers, I will say bullshit because I'm not just going to nod and say, oh, that's great. Like all the people that have to put up with your ass do. Hey, Kenny can't so take us can out of a video jobs. game. Yeah, you can't take me out of the video game. Can't let my contract expire. So I'm going to tell you, you whiny little dick lickers, your shit don't fool me. And it doesn't fool a lot of other people either. Even though the simple-minded little fucking trampoline fans that you've got that like all your flips and all your bullshit can't see through you because they're not smart enough, we can. We know exactly what you're doing, and we're going to mention it every fucking week. Because you care more about whether you and your friends get to play than whether this Mark billionaire ever gets a return on his fucking investment. And speaking of which, we come to the main event of this program. Will Ostrich and Ozzy Oldham against the Hardly Boys and Harpo. And again, it's exactly what you would expect. Ostrich and Harpo start off, act like a video game. Then they all do an extended 100-mile-an-hour six-way in front of the referee. Nothing makes sense. They all fight in the arena. Then they get back in the ring. Then they do some illogical nonsense. Nobody can figure out who the babyface and heels are. There's no flow to the match. Meaningless moves, one after the other. Stupid flips and dives. It looks like a video of Cirque du Soleil. The referee is completely buried. Nobody sells shit. Everybody's basics look completely shit and phony. Everybody kicks out of a bunch of ridiculous shit. And then they finish up right before they're supposed to go off the air. But this one right here may have been the worst and phoniest wrestling match I've ever seen on AEW television. Because everybody was trying to outdo the other one on how many cheerleading routines they could do, making the human pyramid, boosting a guy up so he can hang off another guy's neck and be twirled around three times so that the partners can throw other partners into the opponent's moves, blah, 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 blah. And then it becomes over suddenly for some reason. Was that pretty much blow by blow what happened here for 30 fucking minutes? It went on a long time. And, you know, if you're into these guys and you're into this stuff, and Osprey's talented, and that one guy in Aussie Open's got some good size to him, then it's all right. But like you said, they kick out of everything. 
Hey, the, the they guy take in forever Ozzie to Oldham, set up their moves. The guy in Ozzy Oldham has the size. He'd be wonderful to be on the bottom of the pyramid pitching the smaller cheerleaders up in the air. And Ostrich is a very talented son of a gun. I would say that he should walk on to America's Got Talent with his well, gymnastics routine next week. He's British. They have British people on America's Got Talent. He's in America. That means America's got him. And until he gets kicked out, which could happen anytime, <laughs> that's not how it works. He's qualified to go on, and he should go on and do his gymnastics and his tumbling. And they'd get a rounds of applause from me. It's only that they're fucking embarrassing when they get in a wrestling ring and try to have a wrestling match doing that shit. That's when I take offense. Because I got news for you, Ostrich. You ain't any more of a fucking wrestler than Twinkle Toes. Whether you guys like each other or really do hate each other, whether you're working a gimmick or you really can't stand him, I can identify with that if you can't. He is an insufferable fucking douchebag. But you're pretty much a fucking twat yourself with your goddamn eggplant hair. You look like a goddamn the ass end of a fucking northbound fucking mule. Um, Where did this come from? Well, it just, I'm just listening to these insufferable, whiny-voiced little fucking douchebags, these giant vaginas knocking each other and twitting back and forth each other. And either one, they don't have a point because both of them suck for the same reasons in the same way. It's not professional wrestling. You're very talented acrobats. Go flip around on somebody else's dick. Stay out of my fucking business. I can't stand to watch either one of them because it's fucking ludicrous. And if if you were to, even though they look like they're in good shape and they have nice physiques, they're the most unintimidating pricks I've ever seen. Even if they are able to knock somebody out, you wouldn't think it by the childish things they argue about and the fucking feminine manner in which they skip around the ring doing their goddamn round-offs and cartwheels and handsprings and various things of that nature. And then they get their panties in a bunch because somebody insults them and hurts their fucking feelings. So fuck Ostrich and Harpo. They're two sides of the same fucking coin. All right, well, unfortunately, due to restrictions, that won't be the name of this episode. Fuck Ostrich and Harpo, but I wish it was. Can, can they? Can the episode be two sides of the same fucking coin? Yeah, that ain't gonna work either. And won't work either. We're we're under TBS rules now. Oh well, in that case, I'm, give, I'm, give me some money. <laughs> I, I gotta I gotta find myself. Uh, All righty then. But that's this week. Now we got the big shows this weekend to look oh, forward to. What a weekend. And I got to watch Bleacher Report and The Cock because I have Spectrum, by the way, did I mention, ladies and gentlemen, they still haven't fixed whatever it is. Whenever I try to order a pay-per-view, a screen pops up that says I'm supposed to call a local phone number after six o'clock on Sunday, the night of the fucking event that starts at seven, and then they'll redirect me back to that. So basically, none of these wrestling promotions are getting any more of my fucking pay-per-view money because Spectrum can't get their shit together enough to sell me one and spectrum ain't getting any of this pay-per-view cut either because they can't get their shit together enough to sell me one so i'm gonna have to do the streaming tv thing which i fucking despise because there's no on-screen fucking search to get by some of this drismal fucking dreck as well as the fact that i can't use my cable remote which has all the good buttons 
Have you noticed? Here's another thing, Brian Last. They're making all the remotes these days with fewer buttons. I want more buttons. Because inevitably, on these little bitty tiny remotes with four fucking buttons, there's a function that you want to functuate that won't function because you ain't got a button for it. Has that happened to you? I'm pretty comfortable with my remotes, but what I was going to say is... Yeah, well, shove your remotes up your ass, Well, then. thank you very much. You've had this problem ordering the pay-per-views, and now I'm smiling because of your comment here, but I had also a problem last time. I had a problem ordering the pay-per-view. I'm going to do Bleacher Report again. Last time was the first time I tried to do regular pay-per-view, and it didn't work. They've had really good pay-per-view numbers. So the one thing you could always point to and say, hey, they're doing this. Makes me wonder if there are a lot of people who are having these issues. People who are not going to go, an older fan, who are not going to go to a Bleacher Report, who tried to order it on pay-per-view, couldn't get it, and gave up. If we're both having this issue, how many other people are having it? Yeah, but Andy, and you know how all this shit works. You still couldn't order it, right? Right. I tried to order it through the TV, through Xfinity, and I had no luck. I had to go through Bleacher Report. Well, I would assume that, again, we're not alone, that other people are having the same, if we're having it, the other people are, and, and we have to watch this shit to talk about it for our business. Other people are actually spending money with no return, just the enjoyment of watching these things, and they still have trouble getting them. That's what put Ring of Honor out of the internet pay-per-view business 10 years ago. Because those fuckers that go fight live, people got tired of, of going through the trouble. Even if they didn't get charged, they looked forward to it. They went to the trouble. Then they had the aggravation of sitting there trying to watch a black screen or a shitty signal or whatever. And they just gave up. And, you know, this is not widespread, I guess. Most of this streaming shit works for people who like that kind of thing. But... <laughs> If you're trying to order a pay-per-view for 50 fucking dollars and you and you still can't, somebody needs to tighten that shit up. Hey, Jim, before we get out of here real quick, just because it refers to something we talked about a little earlier in the show, another quote from this Paul Levesque interview with Ariel Hawani is making the rounds right now. One of the quotes here, let's see if you can figure out which one jumped out at people. He was asked about how he felt about the rebranding of NXT after losing the Wednesday Night War to AEW. <laughs> People put so much pressure on this, this competitive war. It never was that. First of all, they beat our developmental system. <laughs> Good for them. No, it was never that. There was never any, <laughs> there was never even pressure of, you have to beat that. It was just put on the best product you could. And then he says that, of course, they're paying attention because everything is competition, that typical line that justifies predatory business practices usually. But, Jim, what are your thoughts on saying good for them, they beat the developmental system? Well, that's what we said three years ago. And that's what I said that they were saying at the time. And it, it's not even diminishing what AEW was doing. It's just stating facts. If Vince McMahon had really wanted to wage a full-on war and put them out of business, then remember we talked about it at the start. Every WWE superstar was available to pop into NXT. 
And it happened every once in a while and not ever. We never saw Roman Reigns wander onto the NXT fucking program, right? It was a way to put a stumbling block in the path of this new upstart promotion. We'll counter-program them with our developmental system. And if we win, or even if we just take viewers away from them, then that's a positive. And we've established another couple of hours on television, on national cable. And there was really no way the WWE was going to fucking lose. They couldn't, they didn't look bad only in the eyes of the AEW fans who are just blind to the whole thing. It never looked bad that they lost the time slot rating by what, 200,000 people or sometimes 150,000, sometimes tighter than that. When it was the flagship show of the new promotion with every major star that they had on it, from Jericho, etc., on down, against the developmental program, the C show. And the difference was a few hundred thousand. That's not a goddamn. Vince didn't dismantle NXT because they didn't beat AEW in the ratings. That was just to give them some aggravation and just keep a few hundred thousand people from watching AEW. Vince dismantled NXT because he went down there and saw a bunch of fucking Johnny Garganos. And said, what the fuck has my son-in-law been doing? Because I knew they had plenty of shit going on there that was good. For a while, NXT was the best program we liked for wrestling that wouldn't insult anybody's intelligence, didn't make everything look fucking fake, and at least had some guys that could fucking go blah, blah, blah. Vince dismantled it because he went down there and fixated on the amount of people that would never, ever be on the main roster under him, and he was right about most of them. And that's why he did what he did. It wasn't about the TV ratings. Uncle Dave might tell you that, because that's what he hears from Tony Khan, and he's far up Tony's ass. He wants to believe it, too. But the real story was Vince went down there and then turned around and said, Bruce, what do you think? And Bruce read Vince's mind. But they were, it was like he didn't see Damian Priest. He saw Johnny Gargano. He didn't see fucking, you know, this talent or that talent. He saw the fact that the Undisputed Era was all fucking 180 pounds. And that's what I said. If they had had... A couple of guys at that size that were really exceptional and everybody else looked halfway like a wrestler and that they could make the main roster, Vince wouldn't have had a fucking issue. But when he sees a bunch of them running around, that's when he doesn't want to hear anymore and he's got his own fucking idea and he's going to revamp that thing. And that's what happened. And now even if they revamp it back, now you've, you know, Jesus Christ, you've, you've, you built a pyramid Everybody loved it. Then somebody came around and tore it down, and you saw, well, I guess it wasn't as sturdy as we thought it was. Well, now, even if they want the pyramid back, you can build the pyramid again. You've already seen the pyramid tore down once. News off of it. Blooms off the rose. Whatever the fuck. So we'll see. But that's what it was. It wasn't the TV ratings. It was the... And a, a lot of people are going to say, well, goddamn, like Vince McMahon didn't know that all those guys were down there. I got news for you. No, he fucking didn't. 
if you'd have held a gun to Vince McMahon in what fall of 2000 and said, does Brock Lesnar, Shelton Benjamin, and John Cena work for you? He said, who the fuck are you talking about? He might, he would have recognized Brock's name. Rest of them. Fuck. I don't know that he ever watched an episode of OBW in five fucking years, six years. So the answer to that question is no, he didn't know what the fuck was going on down there and didn't know what anybody looked like except what he was told by the people he was a, he might ask a question to or might be tasked to, to give a report. And what were they going to say? Oh, yeah, there's this uh, bunch of guys down there. Triple H has signed up. They're five foot two and a hundred and nothing. So there you go. So, yes, I agree with Triple H's comment. <laughs> Congratulations, you beat developmental. Well, we'll see who uh, beats who this weekend, and we'll be back on the drive through. Be recording the day after. All out, so we'll be all out of energy, but we be back. Can't even talk. I'm already out. Are of you? The, are you? I'm already out of the energy. Fuck. Are you trying to close up my show anyway? I guess I am. I don't know what's going. Well, on. I'll do that for you. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening. If you didn't listen to us, go fuck yourself. We'll find somebody else to listen to us just fine. Until then, for the drive-through and next week's experience for Brian. And Hotchkiss, if he's still around, and Travis, if he's still doing well. Kippelman. And anybody else. And Kippelman. Thank you. Fuck you. Bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights, I get to stay up late. Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Hey, Mom, I need to watch the show. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo.
wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Corny, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold a candle driver, Matt Warner. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play Scott the Submarine with him and his wife. And no, Mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero The young bucks could shoot on the Sawyer Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer Don't come in, Mom! Don't come in! Are you touching yourself again? No. Did you chew the Wi-Fi password? Mom! No! Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch this show Elster says I'm in the key demo I am 39, I'm in the key demo I'm a single 